Welcome to the TetraCast. It's a leap day edition of the cast. February is just hanging on. Uh, I am your host, Brian Vitale. Joining me today is Josh Torres. Hi, hello. What's going on? Happy leap year? Is that what people say? <laughs> leap day. Something like that. Uh, we've got Adam Vitale. Hey, guys. We have James Galizio. Hey. And joining us today is Alexander Donaldson. Hello. Hey, how you doing, everyone? <laughs> All right, so we've got a reason for the special cast uh, and crew today. But before we get into that, as always, we're going to start with a brief section about what we've been doing this week. We had a few releases that came out within the last seven days. We've got new reviews up on the site. We've got a few cool uh, preview articles and interviews and some even some uh, content for our YouTube channel. Uh, But at first, we'll just talk about in general what we've been doing. Uh, I'm going to take a rain check on this because I've mostly, on my end, have been playing Saga Scarlet Grace, which is kind of a well-traveled topic ever since our Game of the Year cast last year. Uh, I just want to say very briefly that I'm enjoying it a lot and I should have started it earlier. Uh, Basically, I trust your guys' opinions a lot and I should have, you know, believed that it was as good as people here have have stated. So... uh routes have you been playing i started on um uh, is it leonard adam keeps calling yeah. it leonardo but it's leonard and as soon yeah. as i told him <laughs> as soon as i told him that it was uh that i was starting that he was like no don't do that one first i'm like too bad i i this is what this is what it's spat out to me that's uh, right exactly that, like, just do it uh, however you want Right. I've, I've been trying to like play it mostly organically and not worry because it's an open ended game. Obviously, it's not I wouldn't call it like open world, but it's like go where you want, you know, let the wind take you. It's not like railroaded. And I've been trying to play it mostly organically, but it's it's tricky when you're when it, when you're worried about like doing something in the wrong order or making the wrong decision. You're just thinking about like gameplay systems, just like letting where the wind or water take you. We're trying yeah, to play like I a just, video game instead of like where they want you to, to actually go with. Right. I and it, I, I just like how uh, fundamentally like lean it is. And it's it's very much like we're, we're not going to introduce these systems that we don't want to implement, you know, half assed. Like, for instance, like it doesn't have a it doesn't have currency. It only has materials. It doesn't have town exploration. It only has the world map. Like it kind of knows where exactly it wants to like. Cut, cut corners has a bad connotation, but you know it wants to focus on yeah. very specific mm-hmm. uh, the mechanics of the combat system, the permutations of like the overworld like quests and event setup, and I'm enjoying that. Uh, and then while I've been playing it for the first time, I think Adam has been playing it just like wrapping up a few things for like the twentieth time. I don't yeah. know if he wants to talk about that at all. So I have put more than two hundred hours into the game. That's Holy shit! Crazy. It's yeah. That's, um, so the very loosely in terms of like end game content in Saga Scarlet Grace uh there are 20 map regions in the game so like the world map is segmented into 20 regions and if you complete the puzzles in a certain way in each region 
you can take on a super boss in that region. You can actually take on like a super boss. And then once you beat it, an upgraded form of that boss. And it, the game is built so you're not expected to do these all in one playthrough. Because, you know, the way the permutations of the quest system works, you probably will screw up. Or not screw up, but you'll might complete the quest not in a way that uh, engages a super boss in any region or another. So over the course of, play th- of many playthroughs, I was able to take them all out. And once you are able to take out all 20 of these super bosses over the course of, for me, five playthroughs, then you could take on the final boss, basically upgraded, kind of like the game's ultra boss. And so I, I, did, I like this game enough. I knew it was going to take a lot of time. And I decided, yep, I'm going to take I'm going to take on this guy. So I did one final playthrough and basically built my team in a very specific way. Uh Spent a lot of time making sure I had the best weapons and, you know, the best roles. Roles are, like, things that affect your stats in the game. And that, that depends on what weapons you equip and things like that. And took out that boss to basically put a cap on this game and say, hey, I did, I did everything you could do in this game. And I wouldn't so have done you that. Like I, would, I wouldn't have put in all that time if I didn't enjoy it so much. Is this option available to all the pl- plate or all the routes? Or do you have to be on a specific route to do it? No, you can do. I'm I'm pretty sure you can do any of the super bosses on any route, but some routes the puzzles are different. So I know there's some routes where like getting the Scarlet Fiend, which is the those regional bosses, to appear in this region is easier to do on Urpina's route versus Balmain's route or whatever. There's so there's some cases like that, but otherwise I think you can do it with any character or team. Well, would you say that you're like a guru or expert now in this game? Like you know it. Yeah. I'm pretty sure I. Brian's actually been asking me a few like pointed questions, like "What do I do in this quest?" And I'll know like I've done it so much that I'm like, "Yeah, just do this." I yeah, basically. Anyone else on? Go ahead. Sorry. I wonder if anyone else on the Steam version has actually gotten all of the achievements, or if Adam's the only one. <laughs> gotta be he could probably do that comparison where it's like zero point zero 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 one percent of players. Have I this. think I think the achievement icon said one point eight percent. But that I think that also includes Japanese users too. So yeah. and some some people on Steam also use like an unlock like you can, yeah, you can cheese it. cheat for it. There's always like a, a, there's like a baseline where you do that. Yep. And you have to play the PS4 just... version so you can have a more fair comparison. <laughs> <laughs> right. So the only other thing that I've been playing this week is that there's the um in in early in the year, like early January, during like the Lunar New Year for Monster Hunter World, they had the uh, like the Joy Festival for the console version, and the PC version just gets it this weekend. So I, I poked around in that very briefly. I like to usually at least put it like one day into those just to see like what silly costumes there are, or what you know, what new uh, layered armor there is. So I've been poking at that. Uh, James, we broke our unwritten podcast oh. rule already. We talked. Oh about yeah, we both. talked about Saga and Monster, and Monster Hunter. We will just never learn. It's been a really slow first quarter of the year, so I don't oh, blame you. So slow. Yeah, um, I've been playing uh, Atelier Eskin Logi. I, I actually thought it was pronounced Logi, but apparently his full name is Logics. Well, I so, think it's supposed um, to be it, a play on the word like Eskology, so it's probably just the Logi part of that. That makes sense. That makes sense. Look it up. I think Zach always called it Logi. uh, Zachary's former. um, Eschology is the part of theology concerned with death, judgment, and the final destiny of the soul. That's deep. This is deep. So uh, did you already Uh, finish Aisha? 
Yeah, I can. I finished the. Uh, I don't know how you pronounce it. Aisha, Isha. Uh, gosh, <laughs> but um, yeah, I finished it. And I don't think last week. I think it was a week before that. Let me double check. Uh, I finished it. Yeah, I finished it on the nineteenth. I, I actually keep a yeah, lot of that yeah, stuff. Yeah, well, you and Adam like churn through these at a rate that I just can't keep up. But what do you think about oh, Emoji? Because I hear like a lot of I, I, people. People seem to, in my perspective, call this. Like I a need high to say of the series almost. I need to say I haven't actually put all that much time into the, the game yet. Like I've only put like maybe two or three hours. Like most of my time has been spent on the other game I've been playing this week. But I do have like some impressions so far. Like, uh, one thing I immediately noticed is that there's a very definite tone shift compared to the previous game in the Dust Trilogy. Like, um, and it makes sense. Like, the first game, Aisha, or however you pronounce it, uh, it's a very kind of somber, depressing tone to the whole game because of the story hook is she's trying to save her sister that she thought was dead for, like, however long. So it's like a very personal journey. It's obvious what the end goal is. Eskin Logi, uh, or bleh. it's not exactly the same thing because I already know what the goal is, but it's not something like I want to save my sister. It's more like we want to explore these unexplored ruins, which obviously is a lot less like uh, serious than uh, the story hook in the previous game. And it's fascinating how you kind of see that tone shift throughout the entire like kind of aesthetic. Well, it's like, also a it, it it is a sequel, right? Like set ten years yes. later, maybe not that long, a couple. Years I think later. it's like five years later or something like that. I don't know exactly, but there are returning mm-hmm. characters. So like there were two main, well, two like important side characters in Aisha, uh, Marion Quinn and Linka. I forget her last name. Who could both be party members, at least in the Vita version. And you did quest for them, and they actually did have their spot in the plot. And they are even larger characters in Eskin Lodgy in the fact that... Um, so the story is is that both Eska and uh, Lodgy are like state alchemists for this um, branch of this government. And you're basically trying to help build this branch up from basically being at the bottom rung to like actually being competitive with the rest of the branches in the government. And, um, the, uh, basically your bosses are, uh, Marion and Linka. So that's how they tie in. And I've already run into a few other characters from the previous game and they are grown up and all that stuff. One thing I, immediately notice is that the soundtrack is a very different tone compared to uh, Aisha. Um, Aisha was definitely more of a wistful, like um, depressing soundtrack, which makes sense. It's kind of like, it was more mystical, I'd say. Whereas immediately uh, Eskin Lodgy's is more jazzy. It's very like new agey. Yeah. It's energetic. It's very, Honestly, it's very, very, very good. Um, I also noticed the costume designs are also very different in the sense that they're a bit more extravagant. Like, uh, the costume designs in the previous game were actually pretty subdued, I'd say, for a JRPG. And these ones are very, um, well, they're still not, like, super, like... Obnoxious. Yeah, they're not obnoxious, but there's definitely a bit more 
flair to them, if that makes any sense. Um, it's, it's weird to hear um, anything in this series be described as like depressing or, or even like any, cause it's always seems so like bubbly and happy and like just from, as an, from an outside perspective. So to hear, do you talk about like these different tone sh- shifts between from title to title is, is interesting from my end. Well, I mean, the dust trilogy makes sense. It would have some of that because it's li- literally based in a world after the apocalypse. <laughs> So. Actually, I guess I didn't know that, but it, just from an outside perspective, everything about this seems like cute and cuddly. Yeah. So it's interesting to hear what it does when it when it wants to goes into that more you know I don't want to say grim but serious somewhat or yeah. more more kind of standard fare for kind of an, an adventure game, especially one where you say it's not like personally driven by saving like a family member, but more just kind of uh, exploring you know a, a new world, whether yeah. it's after an apocalypse or in some other setting. Yeah, I'm interested to play more. Um, so far, the alchemy system seems to be pretty similar to Aisha. I wasn't sure what to expect there, and, I, and obviously it does like change over time. So the new features will probably start being added in like several hours in, and what I'm seeing right now is very, very basic. But um, there's definitely enough changes here that it doesn't feel like too similar to Aisha. And this is at the very beginning, so I can only assume it goes even further away from it as things go on. Um, but yeah, enjoying it so far. I'm definitely going to keep playing it. Now, um, are you playing the Vita version? Yes. <laughs> even though you could play like a Switch version? Because I, because I own the Vita version already. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we will always have an opportunity to talk about the Vita for as long as James is part of the cast. <laughs> <laughs> or playing Atelier, at least. But um the other game I'm pl- I've been playing this week is Rune Factory 4 Special. And, um, That's we actually, not a Vita game. It's a Switch game, yeah. And, and 3DS game too, I guess. But I'm playing the Switch version, even though I own the 3DS version. Don't judge me. But <laughs> um, yeah, uh, I've been enjoying it. We actually put up a review for that one. Um, Kazuma reviewed it for us, right? Yep. Yeah. Yep. And and it's also a few... Yeah, I was gonna say the same thing. It's got a bunch of guide work, yeah. and he, he he really covered it really well. So check that yeah. out. It's a lot of cool stuff. He seems to have loved it. Yeah, it's a great game so far. Um, it's definitely interesting seeing some of the intricacies of the port. Like, um, there's it's weird. Like some parts of the port are really good, and then some parts of them are are kind of odd. Like the the character portraits are high resolution now, and they're obviously new assets. But it seems like besides that and some portions of the UI, most of the assets are actually the same as the 3DS version. The only difference is is that they were put through some sort of upscaling filter. So like maybe like is, though, maybe is... like Waifu 2X or something. I don't know. I was going to say that like upscaling filter would be like a a terrible term like five years ago even. But now there's I see so much like neat stuff with like the backgrounds of old PS1 games being like AI upscaled or things like that. Or like new technologies for basically in general, I'm saying that I feel like the technology is getting there where a lot of times you can you can do these sorts of uh, manipulations. I don't know how it's implemented in Rune Factory, but... The way it's implemented in Rune Factory, I'd say, really depends on how you're playing the game. Like, uh, I streamed a bit of the game in docked mode, like, on Monday, because I got an early copy. Uh, 
local store, I talked about it. And um, one thing I definitely noticed is that some assets that were very clearly blocky on the uh, 3DS version with like a diagonal lines that were like pixel like jumping and whatnot, pixel stepping, I should say. Um, in docked mode on the Switch version, you can tell where the pixels were with the upscale and it just doesn't really look good. Um, in the handheld mode though, and like I've been playing on Switch Lite quite a bit for the last couple of days, I'd say they those upscaling artifacts, while they're still there, aren't nearly as noticeable. So I definitely recommend if people are going to pick up the Switch version that you play it in handheld mode. If you think you're going to be affected by the visuals like being upscaled or something like well, that. Well, it's a handheld Would you say that if you can't wait for Animal Crossing anymore and you need a game that's sort of like it... It's very different. It's very different. Yeah, I'm... Okay. Um, so close now, though. Yeah, it's super close now. Yeah, well, I think 20 days. 20 days. Oh, leave that. I'll be good. Yeah. um, (laughs) Rune Factory is... It's weird. So the whole moniker for the series is A Fantasy Harvest Moon... But the way I've, I've always played it and the way I've always seen it is that it's an action RPG, first and foremost. And then all of the Harvest Moon stuff is used to supplement the action RPG. Like in this game, you can actually plant certain like vegetables that can turn into weapons. And like some like things you plant can actually turn into randomly generated dungeons. And it's funny, one of my actual complaints about the game is how you're forced to basically do a little bit of everything in order to keep going with the action RPG elements because, so you have a bunch of different skill levels and as you level up skills, that increases your HP and your RP and your RP is like MP except whenever you use an attack, even a regular attack, it uses RP and whenever you do anything like cook or craft or forge or upgrade anything, it uses RP. So one thing I ran into with the most recent dungeon is that even though my level, like my regular level is high enough for the recommended level to go in there, the game actually has been expecting you to be crafting and forging much more than I have. So I need to like kind of batch forge and batch craft a bunch of stuff that's kind of like garbage just so I can get my forge and craft levels up high enough so that I can actually use these higher difficulty materials to upgrade my equipment so I have better attack stats and better defense stats. So you think that that feels like tedious to do it that way? Uh, I think it's a little bit tedious. It's not that bad. It's not that bad, and especially once you get the airship license, because then you can just hop around from each like earlier dungeon, get a bunch of iron ore, and then just batchcraft. And you only have to do it like... A little bit, I'd say. And, like, especially once you get in the groove of it, it really doesn't take that long. But it's definitely not something I expected. So, yeah. I was saying I actually ran into that a little bit with Saga because of the smithy. Yes, we're talking about Saga again. Uh, To raise your smithy, like, I just started, like, upgrading armor and people I wasn't using. So uh, your description there of having to, like, you know, craft a bunch of garbage just reminded me of that. Uh, it does sound like an interesting kind of like duality of the two systems at play. I wonder yeah. if this special of uh, re-release is enough for like existing players of the previous release to come back to it. Like, I, I'm not sure exactly how much it. I matters. think 
it, it does add a bit. Like it adds a new like um, mode after you get married called new, newlywed mode, which I haven't touched yet because I'm not that far into the game. And then there's like some other modes. Like I, I definitely feel like it's it's enough being added. And not to mention, this is kind of like uh, in behind the scenes stuff. But like uh, I, I remember like when I previewed it at e3 this year like that impressions piece was like sticking around in some of our most viewed like articles for like a while right alex yeah i'm pretty sure i'm pretty sure that's the case yeah yeah so i mean there's definitely interest there and like and they're still coming out of the pole rune factory 5 at some point too yeah i do wonder how much uh, stardew valley's popularity has actually improved like interest in rune factory I think that and Animal Crossing are both sort of responsible, to be honest. Because you've got to think also Animal Crossing was sort of this niche GameCube game and then, uh, well, niche N64 game, then a niche GameCube game. And then, and it was only really that the 3DS, 3DS game. game. The, it was the free, the DS one was popular too, but the 3DS one was when that series suddenly just blasted into the stratosphere. And I feel like that changed everything. Not only for that series, but also... Yeah, I do wonder how much Rune Factory 5 will take lessons from Stardew and Animal Crossing and see how they decide to, you know, improve the series going forward now with modern sensibilities, I guess. One so thing I'll say mention- for sure about Rune Factory 5, whenever it comes out, is it's going to be a glow up because Rune Factory 4, so it was a 3DS game, but it's pretty clear playing it either on 3DS or Switch, that the game started life as a DS game. Like, the character models, even for a 3DS game, are pretty low-poly, and the um, assets are definitely lower resolution. And I believe in Japan it came out in 3DS in, like, 2012. So that was pretty early life 3DS. So I would absolutely not be shocked if it did start out as a DS game, which means that once... Rune Factory 5 comes out on Switch, that's going to be a big difference in like baseline visuals. I, I have two things I wanted to mention. First of all, so Exceed, uh, their CEO or president, uh, Ken Berry, had an interview with VentureBeat a couple days ago. Um, to be honest, the interview itself didn't have a whole lot of like new insights that hasn't been said somewhere else before at some time. But he did mention, uh, and once again, this is something he's mentioned before, that Rune Factory 4 on 3DS was one of Exceed's most uh, successful games, selling for them 250,000 units, and that's just in the West. So that was a big success for them, and hopefully the Switch version is just improve, is increasing that success. Uh, but also, we actually did a at the end at the end of the year last year we did a poll for most anticipated games of the upcoming year, and Rune Factory Five was of course one of the options. Uh, I think it's supposed to be releasing in 2020 in Japan this year. Uh, at least they said that at one point, although they didn't clarify in the, for the West. We don't know. But it was on our user poll that Rune Factory 5 did break into the top 10. Like it's a type, it's the game, maybe not the most anticipated game that people are looking forward to, but there are a sizable number of people who, yes, this is the game that they're most looking forward to. Hey, hey man, that family is the people who love Rune Factory really fucking love yeah. Rune Factory. And I should mention that there has been like no footage of this game yet besides like a logo. So, they, I mean, I think you pretty much can already know what it's going to look like or at least imagine. But yeah, people are excited. 
It's kind well, of I mean, got like this deceptively passionate fan base because I'm like in another Discord for like a Western MMO. And even in there, people are like, today's Rune Factory four day. Like, I know it's four and not five, but uh, even like within the PC gaming space, I, there's people that I run into that are, you know, le- leaks over into there where people are excited for this series. So it just, it pops up in places I, wonder, I wouldn't have originally expected. I wonder how long we're going to have to wait for a PC port for Rune Factory 4 special. Because knowing Xseed, I feel like that's inevitable. <laughs> Especially right, since it's on a single level, screen yeah. system now, which was probably the one thing holding back a lot of 3DS ports. Since this has only a single screen, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. But yep, we got a new review up for it. We got some guide pages. Uh, it seems like everyone that's played it really enjoys it. Uh, both Cosma and James. So any other comments on Rune Factory or should we move over to Josh? Uh, I think we're good. All right. So Josh, what have we been looking at for the last seven days on your end? You always bring it uh... something different to the cast. <laughs> Yeah, uh, like I said, it's a slow first quarter, so it lets me like kind of look around for some very unusual games that like no one's really playing. But I'm just like, I, I have to like. This is why we. This is why we bring you on. (laughs) Yeah, play the games that no one in the world plays. Uh, I get it. Um, A few days ago, um, I think what was the name of the game? Some Zap, which is a subsidiary of. Psy Games, which, you know, the Grand Blue Fantasy developers, they released a, a game called uh, Konosuba Fantastic Days. This is based on the light novel that had an anime adaptation uh, of uh, Konosuba, God's Blessing on This Wonderful World. It's basically, you know, follows the trend of that uh, isekai trend in um, anime where uh, some person, the main character, gets transported to another world and whatnot. There's one of the more successful stories in that uh, kind of genre, uh, very beloved uh, over there in Japan because it's a very self-aware, very comedic and whatnot. Um, and, it, you know, it's a very basic story at first about uh, this uh, boy named Kazuma. He kind of dies for whatever reason real ro- in the real world, um, gets transported like as a second chance to to live again through this goddess named Aqua. And he's saying, hey, you have like, you know, one wish before you get transported to this world. What will it be? His wish was for for Aqua to like uh, be with him in this other world and whatnot. And then, you know, hijinks ensues and whatnot. So uh, in Konosuba Fantastic Days, like I was kind of curious, usually how these anime adaptations uh, work into mobile games. And it's very obvious from the get-go through um, this game that is very inspired by one of Psy Games' Games is more other successful mobile games called Princess Connect Redive. And Princess Connect is one of those games that I never really uh, looked at until the beginning of this year because I hear, you know, from the circles I, I, I kind of go around, like there's always universal praise about Princess Connect and whatnot. It's on its surface, the gameplay is very <clears throat> generic, I guess. Like, um, you basically have a party of five going through three waves. And the only thing you really interact with is the their super meter because everything else is kind of done uh, automated, like skills, basic attacks and whatnot. Is this a gotcha game? Uh, yeah. I mean, 
mobile games for the most part are well i'm I like i yeah, yeah. very briefly know about mm-hmm. konosuba and i know there's like five main mm-hmm. characters are you yeah. gotching for characters or like weapons or what yeah so the the game you do got uh, gotcha for the characters each character in the game has uh like a rare super rare and super duper rare whatever variant to them and you do roll for characters it's uh it's beyond the main characters it's not only kazuma darkness aqua Mega Man, and whatnot there's like those are like the four main um you also have a lot of uh characters that um i don't know if they ever got adapted to the anime like uh i know Mega Man's sisters like arue and union are in there i i know union was in the anime um but there are other like game original characters i didn't watch the film so i don't know if they're in there or not but you do gotcha for characters um you for weapons, you have to like craft them and whatnot. It's kind of a weird situation because um, it's in Japan only um, right now. I don't know if it'll get localized. If it does, Crunchyroll will probably localize it or whatnot if they are. Um, you have to go through like a VPN if you don't live in Japan as well. So yeah, there's like an additional like if you want to like play it, you have to like find a mobile VPN and whatnot for it um, and connect uh, through it that way. And it's a like. It's one of those games that's like, it's a it's one of those surprisingly well made games because when you start adapting, like, the, these kinds of uh, anime light novel things into games and whatnot, it's, it, you get a very mixed bag, but the you never get to see like how, like, very inspired it is by by another game since this is a subsidiary of Psy Games. They probably interacted with the team at. Prince, uh, the Princess Connect team and whatnot, because a lot of their menu structures and how they do their dailies is very, very, very reminiscent of Princess you Connect. You can see the common DNA. Yeah, yeah, but it's not, it's not, it's not like Princess Connect in the actual combat because Princess Connect is very automated. Like you don't really interact with much. While this one is oddly Final Fantasy um, inspired because it has like a full on ATB system where you have like a bar filling up and you can do. Like a basic attack, two uh, or two special attacks are an ultimate if your bar is filled, and but like the time, like real time is still going, so you have to like make your decision fast, or else, like you know, other bars are filling for like the enemies and whatnot. So you do interact a bit more with this game. It does have a fast forward and auto battle like other mobile games and whatnot, but uh, th- that's cool to see. Um, I-, I don't know, like if I like will like it in the long run. But it was it was one of the games that I started checking out and like seeing where where it goes. Um, the other game I played uh, is also another mobile game, another gacha game. Um, it's it's actually a really weird one, and also one that I actually have like a little bit of history with. Um, back in oh man, was it twenty thirteen twenty fourteen? Um, I got into you know a, a friend of mine introduced me to this. Um, franchise called love live and love live is one of those big idol groups in japan like idol master um i guess bang dream now i'm not wake up girls isn't a thing anymore um sadly anyway there's always a big like an idol craze in japan and whatnot and love live was like one of the first that i got introduced to that uh, i really liked um so Back like around 2013, 2014, there's this mobile game that came out for them called School Idol Festival. And um, it was very much of a, a rhythm game where you had like uh, notes and beat maps uh, go to like different icons on like uh, 
your mobile device and you have to like match up the beat with uh, whichever character it went to. It was pretty simple stuff, but a lot of it, it was uh, very skill based on like, can you do like, uh, like, can you not, can you complete the song without missing a beat and whatnot, like other rhythm games. So I was like, okay, that, that was like one of the very first kind of like mobile gacha games that I got introduced to. Like it wasn't the very first one, but very early on. I'm like, okay, this is kind of cool and whatnot. Uh, but ultimately, like with all these games, like I, I kind of like just bounce off of it because I, my, I can't stick with the game for too long. That's just me. Um, but the, this one is a weird one. They have, have a new one called Love Live School Idol Festival All-Stars. And it's not really a sequel to it, but it's more like a different variant of it because it, it combines our, uh, RPG systems with the rhythm game, but it emphasizes more on RPG than rhythm. And so the, this game, uh, like the whole um, hook to it is that it combines all the different subgroups of this uh, Love Live franchise into one game. So you have the original uh, group from Muse, the new generation that came after them called Aquas, and then a very uh, a new one made for this game that's getting, I think, an anime adaptation but not later on, called uh, Nijikasaki uh, Idol Club or whatever. And uh, like the basis for all of these groups, like in general, like the tying thread in Love Live is that um, all these idol groups are the premises they're like from high schools they're like part of an idol club they they make it big and whatnot for whatever reason and like like the very first like season of it like the basis of it like hey our school's shutting down unless we make it big it sounds dumb i know i get it so um, is this game localized or yeah this, Japanese? this one's localized it just got, okay. got localized recently it um it released in japan six months ago uh so but a lot of people were waiting for the global version because it's oddly like to get to be successful at this game. You have to be really good at managing team building because every character in this game has their own skill tree. And you could actually like, it's going to sound weird, but you can actually like die in songs. If you like, <laughs> even if you do well in the rhythm part, because a lot of it is stat driven and there's a certain aspect to it. That's like FF 13 inspired with paradigm shifts. So, in in this game, you have uh, a formation of nine characters uh, going to a song, which is kind of like a battle, let's say. And within those nine characters, you have to uh, organize them into three groups, and like each group um, may have different bonuses. Like a group may be really good at earning score. A, a group may be really good at like healing your life bar. Uh, a group may be really good at uh, charging, let's say, your your special attack uh, bar and whatnot. So in the song itself, there will be um, phases of the song where like, there will be like a, a mini objective. Let's say like it goes into this uh, like part of the song where it's like, hey, you have to gain this much score before these these notes are up. If you fail that, a chunk of your life bar will go down if, if you fail it. Um, so yeah, let's say you have to get that score. You would have to like activate, like say your special attack, uh, bar on it, to, like gain that score up and then you'll be good for that, uh, part of the song. But, uh, but each note that's coming towards you is always like an attack. So you'll always get like, lose a little bit of health for each note, even if you successfully take it. It's just the severity of that attack, that note, uh, will, damage you more if you miss it uh and whatnot this actually reminds me of some 
like this so this sounds like a rhythm game rpg yeah sounds like exactly what it is it actually reminds me of some more traditional rpg but i can't think of it right now it sounds well, familiar in a way i think the comparison to final fantasy 13 paradigms based on the description seems pretty apt yeah so like say like if you're um if, you, if you're running out of health and you need, you need to like um, boost it up. You would like su- like switch over from like your red team over to like your green team because your green team has all your healers. You would switch to them for a bit and have their skills activate and their act and their skills have a chance of activating based on like you know the notes that you hit uh, and whatnot. And then once you're like fully like healed up again, you would switch back like to your red team or something for to gain score because score is how you gain ranks in the game. Like, when, if you the better you do at a song, the better ranks you get, the more gacha currency you get out of that song. So there's incentive, and there's also incentive to keep your health up because it the more full that your health is, the more points that you gain. The lower that your health is, the less points you gain, and whatnot. So it's a, it's a very very odd mix of like. Um, RPG and rhythm game, except like the rhythm game part is like not even really skill based because there's only two like circles uh, for notes to go in, and like you can tap anywhere on the screen, uh, no matter what, as long as that icon was in the circle. And like say for hold notes, you don't have to let go of the hold note; it'll automatically, you know, as long as you keep holding onto it until the very end. It doesn't matter if you uh, let go. Uh, then and then you'll you'll still get it as long as you're you, you held it all the way and whatnot. So it's very light on the rhythm game skill aspect of it, but it's it's very heavy on like saying how you develop your characters. Of like, so it's more so it's more like the preparation of your yes. group rather than the execution of yeah. the song. Yeah, and then it's actually also highly uh, weirdly highly produced as well because like there will be songs where you can alter like what you want the background to be like uh, like it could be like 2d still images and whatnot but then there's also like um background background like models you can have in the uh, in the song itself so you'll have an, a full-on like performance cg performance in the background it's like oddly very well made in in the sense that like you can have any of the the girls like be in that formation and they'll all like choreograph in uh, i'll have their different choreographies for each specific song and then they all have like you can, they can all have different outfits as well and like seeing how that all coordinates together uh is weirdly very good and there's also like even a mode like a high performance 3d mode that my phone can't handle or also it'll just like burst into flames as well um it's very it's very battery heavy my phone can barely handle it um but yeah i, I just think that uh, I like to fool around with games that try something new, and this game uh, does something new with like rhythm and RPGs and whatnot. And I was like, ah, I might stick with it for a bit and whatnot. It seems all right, but yeah, it's uh... yeah, it's interesting. It's like, what if? No, I was thinking like it's interesting. Like, what if <laughs> Final Fantasy Thirteen yeah. Paradigms only you're battling a song with some yeah. rhythm game DNA? Like, why not? Let's let's just try this. Let's mix these things yeah, exactly. together and see what comes out. So. So, yeah, I mean, that's uh, what I've been up to for the most part and waiting for a, a new video game to catch my interest, let's say. And well, we're one day away from March. We would be in March on any other year. So we're almost there. Hold on. All right. So the last person who has yet to speak is Alex, who has been playing a very specific game that I'll just let him introduce. One that we were one of those games. Yeah, I have. Forward to. So what are we looking at? 
Well, it's 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 that time of year, right? I mean, like we just said, it's 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 the dead period, and it's difficult. Um, but uh, it's starting to ramp up now, and I've been going to see a lot of games, and I'll I'll run down some stuff because I've been seeing some non-RPG stuff too, of course, because I do the day job at VG247.com. So I went to see and I played about I don't know three hours maybe of Resident Evil Three Remake. Um, and played a couple of hours of Resident Evil Resistance as well. Long story short there is that RE3 looks really, really good. It is really, really good so far. Nemesis is awesome in it. Um, the, uh, the, the multiplayer thing, I'm not so impressed by. Um, and that only I played, in a few months, right? Uh, it's, it's, is it April or May? I always I forget, it's but it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's not far away at all. Um, so I saw that. That looks good, um, but not RPG, so I'll just touch on it that much. I also saw um, Ori and the Will of the Wisps, which Ooh, is the Xbox-published thing. Um, that may be of interest to some people listening to this podcast because the, the first Ori was sort of a Metroidvania-style game, um, but it was one that was more heavy on the puzzle and the platforming. The combat was sort of an afterthought. Um what I would say is, if you think of Ori and the Blind Forest as almost being like the original Metroid, in terms of the scope and in terms of the amount of stuff you can do in combat and stuff like that, then uh, Ori and the Will of the Wisps is more like like Symphony of the Night. It's got this really snappy, awesome combat. It's still got the traversal stuff. It's got loads of abilities and stuff like that. Um, so there's actually quite a lot of um, quite a lot of, of, of player agency in terms of the type of build you're giving to Ori. Yeah. And it's, of, no, that's, sorry, you go. In terms of like our website scope, um, these side-scroller games, uh, w- whether or not we like cover them or whether or not they fit our scope, it kind of depends on like, I guess how some people put it is, is it more, is it more like Metroid or is it more the Vania half? Uh, the Vania half being like the Castlevania inspired stuff is more yeah. the RPG stats and levels and equipment where the Metroid half of Metroidvania is more the exploration, you know, finding items that allow you to explore area, more areas and backtracking yeah. and things like that. So there are some games that are more like Metroids that we may not cover because they're, they don't really have those RPG hooks. And then there's some games like Bloodstained, of course, being a very specific Castlevania-inspired uh, game, we do cover because it does have those... RPG elements. I know some people basically say like what a goofy that's game. that that's what that's makes it the mania. So yeah, and 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 you know, or Ori and the Will of the Wisps is sort of it's sort of halfway between the two in that your your progression is definitely gated behind. You got a new move, so now you can double jump, and now you can do a sort of blink yeah, through the air to dash over gaps. But it also has you are straight up. You're not earning experience, but you're finding. Um, things out in the world that basically give you skill points um, or give you currency to spend and there's there's a full skill tree where you're choosing exactly what you want to do um yeah it's it's it, it it's definitely something that i don't know that it's something that we would cover but it's definitely something where people listening to this podcast if that game wasn't on your radar you should probably look into it if you like castlevania Random question. So I know that um, some of the guys from there were Moon Studios, right? That's the yes. name of the developers. Yeah. 
Yeah, I know that some of those guys were like teasing on Reset Era that the Xbox One X version was going to have uh, 120 FPS support. Did you manage to... No, I have no idea about that, but we were hooked up to Capture Gear that wouldn't have been able to process that sort of frame rate anyway. Um, But what I will say is it it is definitely Xbox One X enhanced, and it looks absolutely ridiculous in 4K. That is what I can say, but I don't know about any, any... you know mad fps mode yeah well i'm sure that will be on pc anyways but yeah i'm actually it is yeah it's a game pass title so if you subscribe to game pass you will get it it's on xbox one and pc and i did ask them um if there would be a nintendo switch version and they said the classic answer of sort of right now with you know this is what we're doing but we were really happy to see how successful blind forest was so maybe it'll also come to switch in a later date that would anyway, be really this one- interesting for one reason because, like, the main developer behind AM2R and Never Metroid 2 remake actually joined Moon Studios. So, if uh, Well the Wisps ended up um, like releasing on Switch, that would mean that the developer behind that uh, Metroid remake <laughs> yeah. would have a game <laughs> on a Nintendo well, platform. You can definitely tell that people like him were working on this. It's uh, totally reverent. To, to sort of the great to that genre. But anyway, so I've seen a bunch of stuff at preview. I'm playing a bit, some stuff for review, some of which I can't talk about yet, so I won't get into. But the main thing I'm here to discuss on this cast is that I went to a preview event and I played about three and a half, four hours of Final Fantasy VII Remake. It exists. There it is. Um, it is a real video game. It exists. Um, I played... <laughs> I'm going to open the embargo in front of me so I don't say anything I'm not supposed to say. Well, just to um, set the so stage, put- the last time we talked about this was about two weeks ago when they first introduced, I believe, they finally uh, revealed Red 13, and they talked about... The so there's some stuff to talk about there. So that's the stage. So that there's some stuff right to talk about with... Well, there's, some, there's, some, some, there's one thing in particular to talk about with Red 13, but before we talk about that, so I played... Chapter one, which is the opening of the game. So that is the, um, and I apologize for anyone who hasn't played the original Final Fantasy VII, but the only way I can really talk about this is to talk about it in the context of the original game um, for those who do know, because otherwise they'll be frustrated. So I played chapter one, which of course is the original Mako reactor bombing uh, and the escape from the reactor afterwards. So that of course is uh, sort of the content that, that might have made its way onto the internet in December. <laughs> <laughs> through various means, uh, through various unofficial means. Uh, and then I also, once I'd finished Chapter 1, I got to play a bunch of Chapter 2. So Chapter 2 is, of course, when you are above the plate after the bombing, the aftermath of the bombing, uh, meeting Aerith, and all of that is greatly expanded. So whereas that stuff was like, I don't know, 10 minutes in the original game, in the right. remake, it's like, in the remake, that's like, a, a, you know, a good hour. Um, and basically I played from the moment you get out of the reactor until the moment the cloud jumps on the train. Does it and feel then I, like it dra- drags out? Well, well, we'll talk about that, but <laughs> we'll talk about that. And then okay. I also got to play Chapter 7, and chapter, so basically they jumped us well forward in the game, which is great because we got to see some of the um, character abilities and all that sort of stuff because basically when you start the game, I think you start at level 5, the save that they loaded us into in Chapter 7, the characters were more like level 16, 17, 18, 19 sort of area. Uh, obviously, Tifa was playable in that section. And that Chapter 7 is, in the context of the original game, that's the second Mako reactor bombing mission where you go there with Tifa. 
So I got to play that, and that was like from more or less the start of that mission through until um, until the until the boss was defeated. And then I also we got to play the Abzu boss battle, which was what they showed at TGS, of course. So that's like the boss that's um, that's sort of in the aftermath of War Market when you're in the sewers. So those were the four bits of the game that I got to play. So I figure it's it's good to explain that first of all, so people know what we're talking about. And yeah, now I don't know where I'm to... trying to think like, uh, all right, if the second bombing is chapter seven, I'm trying to think in my head like how everything between that they've shown in like the seven trailers for this game, like which chapters three, four, five, six, just trying to think. And then, of course, we actually talked about on the podcast, like in terms of just nuts and bolts, what level will we be ending the game on sort of thing? Like, does it go up to 99? Does it go up to 50? I know that doesn't really well, I, I imagine it will, I, but I imagine it will go all the way up. But I think the question is, um, what will happen with, you know, are they going to have a Mass Effect style thing where you get to take some level of your experience with you into the next game? And what I'll say is, I also got to interview some of the devs, and uh, they are not talking about that shit. They don't want to talk about the second game or the third game, or however many oh, they're going to be. I don't want my renegade, renegade cloud to come over. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they don't want to, but it, but it is interesting because it's sort of that thing of like, um, you know, summons are in this game, right? And in the original game, you don't get summons until you get your first one at the Chocobo Farm. But say, let's say E3, you get E3 in the original game on the cargo ship, but you have him in Midgar now. So it's like that whole thing of in game two, do they take Ifrit away and then make you earn his materia again somewhere else? Or do, do does he come over? But if he comes over, then that means you've got access to summons from right the start of whatever the second game ends up being. So oh, that's interesting. One of the episodes is just going to be just the whole Knights of the Round animation. That's the whole episode. Yeah. <laughs> well, so while we're talking about the scope the scope of the game uh, you mentioned that red was revealed a couple of weeks ago so something that was confirmed to me um and obviously this is the funny thing about my position is that obviously i do rpg site but also i work over on vg Jennifer seven and i have to wear multiple hats so there's going to be a preview on uh, rpg site but i did the i did an interview for vg 7 and you can go to vg 7com and read that but in that interview uh, the uh, co-director of the game, which is, there's more than one co-director, but this was Naoki Hamaguchi. Uh, so a bit of background on him. Uh, he's been at Square since 2003. He worked on Final Fantasy XII. He was responsible for like the battle systems of the 13 series. Um, he seems like a really talented dude. Uh, anyway, he confirmed to me that Red 13 will not be a, a party member in this game, at least in the uh, we actually uh, We actually theorized this, I think, two weeks ago when we were saying, based on the um, the media so far, they're really trying to center it around those first four. And then if Red 13 and those, playable, yeah, would it only be like at the very tail end? That's kind of... Well, so this is the thing. Tail, so, so what but... they said to me, so what they said to me was Red arrives on the scene so late in this story because this game covers the Midgar section of Final Fantasy 7 and obviously Red shows up right at the end and to be fair yeah. once once you meet Red the story is sort of a roller coaster to the end there's no breaks on it there's no stopping there's no like going back for side quests like pretty much you have to assume I would imagine that once you enter Shinra Tower in this game at that point there's no going back and it's that's, just that's it's just, no return. Yeah. It's just yeah. a roller coaster I, to the end. Did you I ask if you can pet Red? 
ask if you can <laughs> i did not actually but um but what they said is basically he will join the party as a guest member so much in the same way that um and this isn't their comparison this is mine but this is how i assume it will be a guest you know we obviously had aranea uh, and um core as guests in 15 so i assume it'll be like that they did say when he's as a guest he'll use all his iconic moves so you'll see him using the moves that people know and love but they just didn't see the point in making him playable because people wouldn't have enough time to even get to grips with the way he plays. That makes sense. Well, I have a couple comments on this. So like that, that I have two, two immediate thoughts when you tell me that one that tells me that uh, some of the stuff they've shown in the trailers must actually happen pretty late in the game. Uh, like at least some of the recent stuff. Well, yeah, I mean, Hojo. There are, I, I was there wondering if maybe there was like, uh, like they were pulling the wool over our eyes and it would actually extend out further than Midgar. Maybe I was being hopeful or wishful thinking, but you're basically making it very clear. Like, no, Red is as it well. Was. Red is pretty late into Midgar, and that that's part of the justification for why he's not playable. So obviously, developers can always lie, but I don't see why they'd lie yeah. about Red not being playable maybe it could go a little bit further i don't know so the the interesting thing is um okay let's talk about new content and so i want to be clear uh, i can't really talk about major story spoilers because square doesn't want us to and also i'm sure many people out there don't want us to but i'll preface this with a mild spoiler warning where i am going to talk about like stuff that's that's added and changed so the trailers make pretty clear, for instance, that Sephiroth has a role in this game where he doesn't really appear in the original game at all in this part of the game. You don't really, well, you don't see him at all in this part of the game, right? Like he is a, a figure that is talked about and he does stuff that you then walk through the aftermath of, but he's not a figure in, in this section of the original game. He's introduced here right off the bat sort of... Um, in in chapter two when you're in the aftermath of uh the mako reactor explosion so basically clouds walking through the streets there's a few interesting things here about this one is that you get to see far more the effect of what's going on so you see a few things you sort of got um you've got kids who've been separated from their parents and their parents are probably dead in the explosion and there's you know dialogue about that that you can overhear as you walk around there's assholes businessmen who are like complaining that they can't get their train because of the damn terrorists and not caring about all the suffering that's going on around them um and all that sort of stuff but then sort of cloud has a lot is having a lot more of the um a lot more of the sort of psychotic episodes that he had in the original game here so he has the one in the reactor that he has in the original game but now he has one here as well and when he has this one here he sees sephiroth right in front of him and there is dialogue back and forth and straight away the game is sort of um is sort of hinting at uh at the events that sort of aren't revealed until much much later <laughs> i'm trying to say this in as delicate a way as possible well, in general um, I think I mentioned this on an earlier podcast as well. I do think the original Final Fantasy VII, there are some weird points in the story where I don't think the whole history or the whole plot line is explained as well as it could be, where like it's really easy to gloss over key elements of the storytelling uh, in terms of like what happened, what, and what's going on. And one thing I think a remake like this might actually be able to improve on uh, – even if they are changing some things here or there is 
things like the storytelling, making it maybe perhaps more. Yeah, just put more breadcrumbs. What is right? Yeah, like things like a better this, this this encounter extrapolating on who Cloud is and who Sephiroth is and what. So this can go. Him. This could go two ways, right? I think on one hand. So what I want to say is the way they introduce Sephiroth in the remake is absolutely awesome. It's really, really good. And because it's a hallucination, it sort of has that quality that, like, um, the closest comparison is the, the Scarecrow sequences in the Batman Arkham games. Okay. Yeah. Where stuff's real, but it's not real. And then it's flashing back and forth, so it's sort of like those Scarecrow sequences, right? Um, so it's really, really cool. That stuff could wear super thin, super early. The other thing that I would say is... I wonder how this is going to be to someone who plays this game who doesn't know the existing story. Because if you know the existing story, you see that, you hear that, and you go, mm-hmm. awesome, and you know what it's building towards. But if you're playing this as, as you know, a, a normal individual otherwise, you're seeing that and going, like, what the hell is this about? Like, And it doesn't get resolved, you would assume, in the course of this game. Yeah, for the people that are here, I don't. I don't think. I think the four of us have played it, and James hasn't. Uh, so it'll be interesting once uh, once the game is out and we're discussing it, being able to have you know the people who have the, the knowledge going in versus the people who don't. What their takeaway is, and I think that also kind of touches on what Adam was talking about: how the story part without without going into detail at all, a part of the story about Final Fantasy VII as it was originally was recontextualizing the early events of the game based on what you learn later. But now, since we don't have that later playable, how do you how do you tell that story in the same way? It's yeah, it is, this is a weird different. one. I, I yeah. actually um, I actually know like a person who really doesn't like the original Final Fantasy VII how they handled Tifa's like backstory because once you know like what it is, it kind of feels like she spends the whole first part of the game like lying to you or not revealing things that maybe she should have. Or, you know, because it's like she knows all this stuff, but she does, she's not telling Cloud any of it. And like, uh, it's just kind of awkward how like it's eventually revealed like, oh, yeah, I actually was there and I know everything. That, and then I pretty much know what Cloud's situation is here. But I didn't say anything. So it's really, so I wonder how that it, might be tweaked, maybe. It's it's really interesting. She's got a line of dialogue. You're sort of being taunted by Heidegger from Shinra over the intercom. And while he's taunting you and being an asshole, she she says, um, I'm sick of this. And Cloud recognizes that that is something that she said before in a specific moment. And well, that's really... doesn't remember when. <laughs> but yeah, but he doesn't quite remember when. And that's really interesting. But anyway, I don't want to get too much into story stuff. So let's talk about um, some of the game stuff. So... The example I want to use is Chapter 7, which is that second reactor bombing mission. So in the original game, if I had to guess, I reckon that whole mission is probably like 20 minutes start to finish, even including the boss. Maybe 25. It's a full, lengthy, lengthy mission in this game. And they accomplish that by sort of injecting some story changes. <clears throat> so basically, I want to talk about Chapter 7 in regards to how they're making changes from a gameplay perspective. And what they've done is they have used story changes, very subtle story changes, quite small story changes, to sort of justify some gameplay additions to pad out areas. So the original second Maker Reactor mission it's probably 20, 25, maybe 30 minutes tops in the original game, including the boss battle against Airbuster. Um, in this, it's it, it's way longer, and it's all built around 
this new wrinkle they've added with the Airbuster boss. So basically, in the context of the story, one of the things they've changed is that the Shinra executives are well aware of what Avalanche is doing and they're well aware of who you are. And they're actually watching you through security cameras when you're doing these missions, when you're doing this sabotage. And basically, Airbuster is deployed early on in the mission, not in the sense of you fight it earlier, but in the sense of it's introduced in a story sense where Heidegger, one of the bad guys, basically says, we're sending this special experimental weapon after you and it's going to kill you. At that point, you're then working your way out of the reactor. And as you work your way out of the reactor, you have the opportunity to pick up key cards and then go into rooms. Well, I say go into rooms. It's not like they're on the side. You go through them anyway. You're going through rooms where there are computer terminals where you can then spend those key cards, one-time use, in order to turn off some of Airbuster's systems or to deny it ammunition that reduces the amount it can use its most powerful moves and stuff like that. So basically, it adds this wrinkle, this task for you to do as you go through the reactor. And the, the, the task has a direct effect then on the boss battle you fight at the end, where if you sort of rush for everything, you are actually going to suffer more because Airbuster's going to be much more difficult, going to be much more powerful. But if you take the time to sort of use these key cards, turn off these systems, then Airbuster's going to be weaker. But it also takes you a lot longer, which is how they're sort of padding out this section of the game. The thing I'd say about this is it's really good. Um, there's some great dialogue around these systems um, where you know Barrett and Tiff are debating about what systems to turn off and stuff like that. But the format of it, you can see how it's been used to to pad the game. So you can definitely see um, what's the what's the word? So I'm you can be a bit cynical about it. You you can definitely see that like so once you once that concept is introduced of picking up key cards, you sort of you start in a room, a square room. You fight some soldiers. Once the soldiers are dead, you can use the computer terminals to use your key cards. Then you leave that room. You go up some stairs. There's a sort of square room at the top of those stairs where the stairs sort of go back on themselves. So there's usually some enemies in that square room. Then the stairs go back on themselves up again. At the top of those stairs, there's another square room with soldiers. You fight the soldiers, you use your key cards again, and then you do it again. And so in that sense, it sort of is a little bit reminiscent of the area design of like Final Fantasy 10 or 13, which obviously can, can really can really set some people off, right? Like, not everyone yeah. is into that. But, as far as I'm concerned, I didn't feel like I was sort of in a corridor when I was playing it, because the combat is really engaging. The character interplay is excellent. Barrett is hilarious. Um, yeah, so... Well, you I can think see that's how sort that... of the... Um, that sort of kind of describes the difference between what I think some people's opinions are between like 10 and 13, which you described, because some people will say, well, they're they're so similar. And some people will say, well, no, because of the way the battle system works or the progression system works or, the, or how well you're attached to the characters, they don't feel similar. They feel different. I, I guess that's the exact problem of like, was it fun to do uh, along the way? Well, the, 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 the key card stuff is, is sort of fairly rote, but I think the thing is, the combat in this game is absolutely excellent. Um, uh, and so that sort of holds it up. You're battling these soldiers along the way, and you're working towards this boss encounter, which you know is going to be big. Because I think the thing I'd say as well is I the, the, the section I played involved three boss battles, and all of them 
are long. Like Airbuster, you'll be fighting him for at least ten minutes. At so least it feels like event like bosses are more like events in this game. Like there's something yeah. you're really working towards. There's there are big. big We're sort of like I I don't know if any of you guys who played it at E3, um, but that Scorpion boss is long, right? Yeah, That's I, the first I was boss in the game. Just about to mention that I did the E3 demo, which. Uh, like you said, it is also sort of like a linear path in a way. At least that demo was. Of course, it might change. But it feels like an event. Um, and then you fight yeah. the scorpion thing. I forget its name at the end. And it's that is like an event. And it, it has phases that you have so, to go through and you have to be careful with. So so in, in this build, so the, the E3 build was, was, was a funny one because they, they toned down clouds. The cloud has two distinct modes he can use operator mode and um punisher mode basically cloud has two distinct sword move sets that come out when you hammer square your basic attack button and there's two different modes and one of them is better for sort of building up that stagger meter and then when an enemy gets staggered you can sort of deploy the other mode to do lots of damage okay obviously the skills are the same so you've still got braver regardless of which mode you're in but your generic attacks, which of course you have to use to keep charging the ATB gauge to use those skills, they are they are what differs between the two. So it's maybe sort of like an active version of paradigms in FF13, where you have to change in a sense. to do staggers and change it to do damage. But you're changing in this game. Obviously, it's much more active. It feels like, but, the, the, but, but this is cloud exclusive, so all the yes. other characters will have different. Yeah, I mean, again, and this is the problem. You don't. The game is centered on cloud, so even in a build like this, you know, I could play Barrett and Tifa and Aerith in various sections, but really, the game it's harder to get to know them. So I, I can't speak as in as much detail about about those characters. Like Barrett, sort of has he's got his basic shot, but then he's got his overcharge shot. But you well, can only I, use that. That's got a big cooldown on it, but you can sort of recharge it by pressing the button again, and he sort of cranks his gun up but that takes time i'm trying so to remember i remember when i did the scorpion boss there was a reason that i found when i was fighting him to like play as cloud for a bit and then switch over to barrett in real time so, to have him do something and then switch so with cloud. so with the scorpion specifically the scorpion can grab a character so if the scorpion grabs cloud because he's up close and personal with sword hits cloud can't do anything so at that point you would switch to barrett and unleash a powerful attack in order to force it to release cloud. So there's stuff like that, um, which, you know, is, is, is good. What I'll say is, is, is Hamaguchi, again, co-director, but sort of it's that weird thing of Tatsuya Nomura as the director and uh, uh, Toriyama from Final Fantasy Thirteen and stuff is the story co-director. And then Hamaguchi is sort of like the, the, the gameplay co-director, I guess. And I was talking to him about the battle system and he was emphasizing to me that he views this battle system as an evolution of ATB, first and foremost. He was saying, we started by thinking, how can we take the battle system from Final Fantasy VII and make it work for a modern audience? And the way that they made it work was to put an action layer on top of it. But he said it's crucial from his perspective. He thinks of it as an ATB game with an action layer on top of it, as opposed to an action game with an ATB layer on top of it. Hmm which is two very different things, which is why they've got, they're able to have classic mode where the, the moment-to-moment action and movement and stuff is completely automated and you just select commands just like in the original game. So that's, 
from an outsider's perspective, I'm, I'm one of the ones that hasn't played it at E3 or at another event. Like, even though you're describing it a certain way, when I look at the gameplay trailers or whatever, like, when I see that stagger mechanic, it's like, Final Fantasy XIII is what comes to my mind, just visually. Yeah, totally. And also understand and, and, how and, it looks. And there is... You know, there is a a, a through line there. Kitase produced both, and Hamaguchi, like I say, designed the battle systems on both. But I did specifically ask him about the about thirteen's effect on that, and he was pretty clear that he that he viewed thirteen as sort of um, maybe he said maybe it was subconscious, but he wasn't trying to 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 echo thirteen at all. It was, but I think Stagger works. As an idea, I think the thing I'm most curious about. I like the idea of like this is kind of an MMO term, but I like the idea of burn phases. Like when when a when a when the defenses are put down, whether it's a stagger mechanic or a specific boss's like cooldown yeah. or something, where this is the phase where you do your damage, where you where you unleash your you know your strongest attacks or your cooldowns. That just feels good. And I'm speaking kind of very generally, and obviously you see that in MMOs and a lot of action type games. And well, with, I do think I like the I like the staggers take on that. With this system, it's interesting because obviously. The most effective way to earn stagger is to use your ATB charges, but the most effective way to deal damage is to use your ATB charges on skills. So you end up in this situation, especially when a stagger bar is almost full, where you're like, right, I'm looking at all my characters. I'm going to wait till they've all got two ATB bars each, and then I'm going to use cloud to push the push the enemy into stagger, and then I'm going to unleash loads of damage with Tifa and Barrett. You know. So you're thinking about all this stuff and sort of switching between these characters and ordering them all around. And I feel yeah, like that sounds perfect. I'll just say it that way. There's loads of depth in it. I think the combat is just fabulous. It'll be the rest of the game around it that remains the question. Everything I saw was absolutely phenomenal, like polished, beautiful. I said to somebody from Square Enix, I was like, what a difference to the first hands-on I had of Final Fantasy 15 where... That was when I had the hands on. It would have been the end of the summer, right? I wasn't right? sure if I should have evoked the specter of fifteen. Uh, obviously, we all well, have it's, it's, it's of just. It, but does the combat feel similar at all, or does it feel like two? No, it's not. It's a completely space. different beast. Right. It is so different to fifteen. It's actually, but it's, it's, it's actually funny because I was just talking with some of my friends from high school like last night that had all played Final Fantasy fifteen, and some of them were big Final Fantasy fans, and none of them, in retrospect, really enjoyed fifteen. So I liked 15 plenty for what it's worth. But um, the thing I'd say is, is, is that I, I think is more, it stands out to me from this hands-on is I remember that first hands-on with Final Fantasy 15 very, very vividly. It was the first, it was the opening of the game and I got to play like four hours from the very, very start of the game. And that was, I saw it at the end of the summer. I can't remember exactly when it was. And it was a fucking mess. It was rough. The game seemed fine, but it just ran like a pig. It just seemed to have so many problems. Um, and I remember, you know, you go to preview events and the people who are looking after the game sort of ask you often at the end, what did you think? And I remember saying at that one, I was like, I quite like what the game's doing, but man, it is rough. And a week later, they delayed it or a week and a half or something like that. Like the previews came out and then very quickly after that, they delayed it. Um, what a difference because Final Fantasy VII Remake just feels polished and ready to rock and roll. So, now, the interesting and then I, I, th- 
I think that tethers a bit into you mentioned how they're not talking about how this game is going to be followed up on at all outside of the very general notion that they've stated that they don't feel that part two or whatever they end up calling it. They think it should be a lot so, smoother because the assets are in place. The, you know, the design philosophy is in place in very general terms. They seem to be optimistic about the rate from this point. So on. they, they, they make overtures towards it. So sort of before we had the hands on, they did a presentation and as part of that presentation, they said, uh, we're in the final, final polishing phase of this, which means now we can begin to ramp, you know, we're, we're ramping up and getting people focused on the second entry. So it's clear they're just like right on through. Um, the interesting thing is there's still question marks. There's a lot of things they're not talking about, even about this game. So it's sort of like, I played this section, but everything I played was a piece of the original game. And everything I played was a linear A to B to C mission. So a reactor bombing, escape after the reactor bombing, um, second reactor bombing, and a boss fight. And obviously there's no openness there. You're not completing side quests in the reactors or anything like that. So then you've got the question of like, what is actually... What is actually happening with the rest of the game? Like they've they've released some screenshots, right, of of menus where you can clearly see, yeah. yeah, where you can clearly see some some fetch quests and side quests and stuff like that. So what I'm curious about is when you're not on the expanded versions of the original game's linear missions and linear story, because I'm convinced about that stuff now. I think that stuff's going to be good based on this hands-on. Got no question. When you're not in that stuff though, what are you doing? And is what you're doing good? That, that I was find all the just about out. to ask that. <laughs> like, did you get to see anything? But literally, so you know, there was nothing. Everything I played was linear point A to B yeah. to C. And, and I think like, that's a very deliberate choice, whether that's because they want to keep it secret or whether that's because I don't know. But yeah. yeah. But I, I'm just kind of wondering, like, yeah, they're just like you said. And we talked about this when they when they revealed those quests, because that so far is our one hint of what you will be doing. Just while as you play the game like the meat of the game maybe uh is when you're not doing a mission these sequences like the original game is pretty much just a set of sequences at this part um but when you're not doing one of these sequences like a boss fight well the truth the, the maker thing make a reactor event what are you doing and yeah just like you said is it just going to be those fetch quests is that is that it well, the truth about the original game is at least this section of the, the the dark truth about every Final Fantasy game, right, is that they're all actually pretty linear. Yes, um, I was going to say that. Sure enough, you get access to a world map and then you can fly around in an airship or a real ship or a car or, or whatever, or a chocobo or whatever, and move around and go from place to place and tackle some side quests and stuff. But the story is always A to B to C to D to E. And actually, someone made a really interesting map of, which was, it was the world map of Final Fantasy VII, and they overlaid the journey that the story takes you in, and in and they and they had each disc in a different color. And when you look at it, you realize that in Final Fantasy VII, you only backtrack and go back to an old place in the story like twice. You go back to the Gold Saucer, um, you go back to Midgar, but like once you've done Rocket Town with Sid, you don't go back, yeah. right? That's right. it. Each, and, each city is just like its own chapter in the narrative, mostly. Yeah, and, for, and 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 but the Midgar chapter, especially the Midgar chapter, is like you are chaperoned by the game from point to point to point. There's no point where the game goes. Uh, let's say after you first meet Aerith and you're down in the slums of Aerith, there's no. Or the, you second meet Aerith. There's no point where it goes right. 
well, your next destination is Wall Market, but go and explore, do some stuff in Sector 7 or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. The game always, but you would assume this game, being a modern game, that's what that has to do, and that's what we don't know about. But also, so, of course, keeping in mind the original part is like a three, four hour thing, and now it's a full game, so they have to somehow. Yeah. So that that's the big question. I mean, that's when you ask me what my bullet point takeaways are from this hands-on. It's like, I think they've absolutely nailed the characters. I think they're incredible. Like the the, the way they've written, the way they've been translated, the voice acting is a little bit. Sometimes it's a bit much. I think Cloud and Barrett are actually great in the voice acting. I think Barrett isn't going to be everybody's cup of tea. You know, I think there's there's definitely some people that I've spoken to who aren't fond of the fact they gave him sort of the, um, for lack of a better word, the sort of over-the-top gospel sort of preacher sort of tone and style. Some people feel that's a bit... a bit. It um, almost feels like, obviously, I don't, I don't really know the direct comparison between his original, like, Japanese interpretation and what shifts were made in the original English release. He is very it much... It seems like they've kind of canonized like, it. They've tried to find a middle ground, and what's great is they have found that middle ground in the sense that Barrett isn't just a boneheaded idiot like he sort of is in the English translation. He's more like he is in the Japanese translation where he's thoughtful, but he's passionate, and that passion means he doesn't have much control of himself. Filter, yeah. And, and Cloud is the opposite, where Cloud is Cloud is almost overthinking stuff, but he doesn't want to say anything. He's always... He, he's, he's, yeah, it's the characters are really, really well done. I think the recreation of the story elements is excellent. The soundtrack, they've got beautiful sort of um, sort of uh, dynamic soundtrack where they've got sort of low tempo versions and high tempo versions and then tension versions. Those are the three I noticed. There might be more of tracks. So it's like when you're just walking around, you'll get the you'll get the calm low tempo version. When you are close to enemies and they can see and you know they might be about to see you and get aggro on you it goes into the tension version then when you're in battle it goes into the kicks up to the fully fledged full-on version did you Um, hear a low tempo version of that so well no he's not really in it but you do well he's in it a little bit but not in that sense but you sort of get hints of some stuff that you wouldn't hear at that point in the game like i said so you hear a bit of trail of blood and actually there's a little bit of Advent Children music um, Wait, at one point. There, there's okay. there's like a, a rearranged version of a track from Advent Children that wasn't in the original game. And it's used in a completely appropriate place, and it's really interesting. And I actually asked Yoshinori Kitase about that, and he said um, that he, he wouldn't be drawn on how much compilation stuff they'd be using, but he basically said the events... It, this the remake is a different line of law, so it's not in. So they can contradict whatever they like. They can change whatever they like, but at they its can core, also adopt whatever they like. But at its core, he said the compilation is the basis for the law of the remake. You should have been like, so, point that out. What, what well, so it's like it's, it's that thing. The, the question is then: is like, does that mean Genesis, Genesis existed in this universe? <laughs> <laughs> Like or, do, or is that one of the things they've chosen to lose? I, uh, yeah. Um, so Katasi said, and I quote, the compilation of Final Fantasy VII, that's all very much in the base of the canon for the remake, and going forward it will be too. Right. So there you go. Get excited about yeah, Genesis. There's a piece of Advent Children music. Um, yeah, so what else? Uh, I think the combat I is excellent. I think, 
Go for it. Uh, I don't know, like, uh, this is a bit of a different topic, but so as part of the preview, they introduced this new soldier character, uh, Roche. Didn't like, say. Not him, uh, I was going to ask, like, not about him specifically, but like, are there any other, like, these kind of very deliberately clear new additions that are, like, not, not just so, or tweaks, obviously, but just actually brand new stuff or characters? Like I said before, there appears to be more sort of psychotic break stuff with Cloud where he sees Sephiroth or hears things or or senses things so there's that um there is uh there is obviously the stuff with the weird ghostly things i only saw those once briefly no idea what they're about um the thing that i wonder is if they're going to be a bit meta um this is not based off the hands-on but somebody said to me once i wonder if they will be like a to potentially save Aerith, and i could sort of see it where maybe there will be a choice involving them where maybe you down the original timeline or maybe you can branch off into an alternate timeline i think that would be a really cool way to do this remake but i'd be done for a what if timeline to sort of allow it yeah and, and have the original story but have a cool what if or something anyway so i saw those um but the sections i played were sort of so it was an expansion of so like i say in the second maker reactor you have scenes where through holograms and stuff the crew get to speak to president shinra and heidegger so it's like in this game president shinra the first you see of him in person isn't the first interaction you have of him isn't going to be like in shinra tower right at the end so there's stuff like that um there there's lots of little touches um so stuff like this is a tiny tiny detail but it's the sort of thing that i noticed um you know when cloud's on the bridge after the 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 reactor bombing and he's sort of cornered by lots of soldiers and then he has to run away and jumps on the train um in that sequence one of the soldiers appears to based on a tiny little piece of dialogue appears to recognize cloud like one of those soldiers appears to know who know who he is and obviously cloud has a pastry soldier and all that stuff so it makes perfect sense <laughs> but it's these sort of details that that's just weren't a little, in the that's game. really good actually and, and who knows that that, uh, that might not come to anything that people who go into the game with that knowledge ahead of time might be able to spot it. And people who don't, and they might. Well, what we don't know is if that leads anywhere. Notice. Yeah. What we don't know is if that might, cause it, cause it might be that that leads somewhere and you meet that soldier again later on as part of the new content, or it might be that it's literally just another little hint of what is to come in the future. Um, or just an appropriate reaction from a nameless character. <laughs> Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, but a hint in itself, right? Um, mm-hmm. but it's, 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 yeah, it, it's, it's, it's interesting the story stuff they're doing. But as far as new stuff, like I say, they've sort of kept us away from it all. So we didn't see that new guy. We didn't see any all new areas. Like we just saw expanded versions of existing areas. Did you um, find a haunted house? Well, no haunted house because I never, I didn't do those sections of the game because I didn't see any of the slums. Basically, Um, I didn't see any of the slums. I probably could have because the funny thing is, it was like it was clearly not like a trade show build. It was clearly just the most recent build of the final game because it was, you know, one of those PRs lurking to 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 pull the plug the second you hit the end of the section you're allowed to see. (laughs) I stepped away for a second, but like one of the trailers also showed like apparitions or spirits we don't yeah know so i mentioned that. alex did mention I, that oh okay. yeah so i saw those but i have no idea sort of what they are 
they're introduced in a scene and very quickly disappear and i haven't seen any more i didn't see any of any more mm. of them in the section they played um, and either way that that gets into the sort of stuff where um yeah people want to go in fresh talk about specific story stuff um in any detail they're obviously foreshadowing the halloween event coming for this game (laughs) (laughs) i can't wait to see the live service events for this (laughs) i think the 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 bosses are awesome i want to say all the enemy designs i'm just trying to think of stand out um the uh the camera can sometimes battles are very chaotic and the camera can really struggle to keep up sometimes um, are there different the, camera zoom in op- options for battles? I didn't check because they sort of requested that we didn't go in the menus too oh, much okay. because the menus are full of spoilers. Um, and I didn't, I don't want many spoilers myself to be honest. Did you, did you play as Aerith much? Uh, the tiniest, tiniest bit because I was running out because obviously of the four sections I played, she was only playable in the very last one. And because of my interview and stuff, I was really running out of time, so I didn't finish that boss battle. I just got to play like a couple of minutes. It seems like it seems like Tifa and Cloud are going to be your frontline fighters, while Barrett and Aerith are like your rear line. Well, it, so, it comes yeah. down it comes. It's interesting because obviously Final Fantasy VII doesn't have the traditional Final Fantasy party as much in the respect mm-hmm. that all the characters can sort of all do anything. So right, because it's just basically it's, it's, choices. So Aerith is your natural mage, but she can sort of do whatever you want. They've given her half decent standard attacks, it seems like. But yeah, I mean, they fit into the roles you would think, where it's like Cloud is the sword fighter. He's the yeah, he's sort of the all around. Tifa is like feels like she's a bit of a glass cannon, so she's really powerful, but also a bit you know not as hardy for taking hits. Barrett is a tank. When I got to the later chapter where they'd all been leveled up a lot, he had like twice the health of anyone else. Um. Yeah, so it's it's, but they all do stand apart, which is I think is the important thing. And that's but something it, it, that it, I think having only four party members, they can really make sure that their roles are kind of well defined. And you'll wonder, like, yeah. as they go forward and they introduce playable red and other characters, how they make it sure that do they want to keep it where it's like there's this general anyone can do anything, or how how basically how far do they want to lean into this like archetypal uh, battle roles? Because with four characters, it, I think they can do that really cleanly. But it definitely does also, they, they definitely want Cloud to be the leading man. You know, it's sort of that thing of every time a battle, no, you can switch to anyone you like in battle, but every time a battle finishes, your control and your camera reverts to Cloud. You can't walk around outside of battle as Tifa or Barrett or Aerith. Mm. Uh, so in a way, it's almost like those other characters like are an extension of your move set. When your boss is in this phase, switch over to yeah, Tifa totally. to do the big damage. To- to- so totally, I, yeah, it's, absolutely. It's form. Yeah, it's it's totally that. Yeah, and obviously you can still tell them what to do. So if you're playing as Cloud, Tifa and Barrett will still sort of attack the enemies. Um, but what you have to do is open the menu and spend the ATB charges. But then obviously you can take control to get more granular if you want, and that's smart um, and it works. Yeah. But so on the overworld or whatever, maybe this was already known, but I guess I didn't think about it. You you play as Cloud and that's it. You can't run around and undertake quests. Yeah. So if you are if you are playing as Tifa, if yeah, if you're playing as Tifa and you're in battle and an enemy dies, and the last enemy dies, and you get your after battle rewards and stuff, as soon as that happens, you'll switch back to Cloud. All right, it's good to know. Maybe we already knew that from some gameplay demos, but I guess I never thought about it. That possibly, but I I hadn't thought about it until I played the game, and then oh. 
yeah. So I think never I'm know. Maybe that maybe that could be an option that you turn off, but I doubt it. I just want to say that's definitely it's great to hear that, especially after Final Fantasy fifteen, where for a while you could only play as Noctis ever. And then eventually they patched in the ability to like sort of control the other characters in battle, like kinda, like a special attack here or there. I didn't even. Oh, yeah, that wasn't even the launch version. That's no, right. and it wasn't even like full control. So the fact that it's like now you have a, a four-person cast again, but now you can control any one of them in battle. That's still a big improvement over what fifteen had, at least especially at start. So that's that's good to hear. Yeah, it's. I think it's shaping up really good, man. Like. um like I say, the questions that remain are what the, the actual sort of new moment-to-moment stuff is when you're not experiencing the remastered, remade versions of the existing story. Um, and also how these new changes, because all these changes they make at some point has a gradual knock-on effect to, um, to the rest of the story. And it's like, how do, you, how do you mitigate that knock-on effect? So a great example is Airbus to the Boss is far tougher and far more threatening in the remake than in the original game. Yeah. And that's good because by the time you fight Airbuster, at least based on this build, I had access to Leviathan. The, the, so I had a massive godly summon. But the boss is so awesome and so badass that it actually doesn't feel out of whack that you've got summons at this point. And so these are the adjustments they need to make. It's like, okay, they need to include Sephiroth and build him up. They need to do that, however, in a way that doesn't undermine the story that's going on. And that's we actually the kind stuff of talked not- about this in a previous cast where it's like, obviously, this being a full-fledged game in its own right, described as like one game, like the comparison that they made early on was to the Final Fantasy XIII trilogy. You're going to have this escalation of power or whatever you want to call it towards the end. But then how do you rein it in if this story is going to have a clear through line to like when you introduce other characters in the future, how do you reset the expectations in just, terms of uh, just the presentation, the battles. At, at the beginning, like at the beginning of every episode, just have death come to you and just like steal all your materia. <laughs> Maybe the that's how I'm curious seconds. about. Like how the game works is more like the actual, the actual like RPG progression in terms of can you tweak your character? Like how do you? I know like materia exists in the game, but to what extent can you sort of? specialize like i'm gonna put so, these sorts of equipment and material on cloud to have them do better in these ways or not sort of thing like like character building i think it's fairly similar to the original game the truth is again they didn't really want us in the menus too right. much so, so i wasn't able to dig about. in too much but it will again that'll be interesting like I, i'm like 50% of this game is clearly going to be super good. 50% of this game is clearly going to be incredible because what I've played now tells me they understand the story of the original game. They understand what made it great. They understand the characters. They understand the lore, and they understand how to take each and every one of those set pieces and build them out in a modern version. However, that isn't enough for this to be the game that it needs to be, to be a full-size 40-hour game or whatever it's going to be. So there's got to be a bunch of other stuff. The did, you notice, is, uh, did, did you notice? Did you notice any like? Did you notice any like meaningful in like environmental environmental interactions like during combat, like anything blowing up around you or anything like in the environment? As no, um, there, there's crates you can smash that drop stuff, um, but I don't recall. And in the scorpion boss battle, there is um, debris you can hide behind. Um, mm-hmm. 
in the Airbuster boss, the, the Airbuster sort of moves back and forth on that galley that you're that you're on. The galley is sort of a T shape, and so depending on where Airbuster is, sometimes your party split two on one side, one on the other. Sometimes, um, so there's positional stuff to consider. To extrapolate uh, for that Scorpion boss, Barrett even literally says like something like he's gonna fire, get cover, and you're like, that's kind of your clue. Like you better move your character behind us at debris right now, yeah. or you're gonna take some damage. And there's lots uh, of that. When Airbuster's charging up its big attack, someone will shout out, say back up, and what you have to do there is just get away and get back in far enough. Um, but I didn't notice like when you think about, for instance, fifteen had that stuff like. Um, enemies could stand in a puddle right and then you could use lightning magic and they yeah. would get executed i haven't seen any of that i think it's a simpler game in that regard which is fine. i think that's kind of enough though like the positioning that you're describing like it sounds adequate and sufficient to me like i don't think i'd want it to get too much more involved than that especially if it's going to be like fast paced and frenetic and switching characters and switching between like stagger and dps Based on just the general description, it sounds like I'm wait, what you're describing. I'm I'm jiving with. I guess is what I'm getting at. Yeah, yeah. I think it's yeah. It's more about the interplay between you and the enemies, and most of the enemies are actually quite um, quite powerful. Like I said before, so it, it just means that uh, that you're rather than being focused on the environment can do with the environment, you're focused on how can I get this guy Staggerbara. And avoid taking damage in the process and maximize, like you mentioned earlier, maximizing your, your yeah, resource well, management. That is one thing, actually, I want to say. That is actually one thing I want to say. This game wants you to block. It loves you to use that block button, um, especially with bosses. It's really easy to eat lots of damage really, really quickly. And because you can't heal without an ATB charge, so you can't, so you can't heal without an ATB charge because using a potion or using a spell requires an ATB charge. And the way you get an ATB charge is by attacking. So if you're too single-minded on attacking, you can suddenly find yourself with next to no health and an empty ATB bar, and the only option you've got to try and fill it is to just keep attacking and hope that you don't die in the interim, <laughs> which encourages you to, to, to plan ahead. But actually, the thing it really encourages you to do once you've sort of had a few cr- close scrapes is actually to start blocking. Which is it's kind of an interesting interplay about like uh yeah I could already I can already see like or envision some like gameplay like person to person people who play like more on the edge or more desperately or people who are more conservative and the like I guess the, the compare even though it's not really a similar game I think of like the people who play Dark Souls with a shield or people who only dodge things like that where people yeah, are going to have their totally own yeah, 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 take yeah. on on how they're going to avoid damage they're going to position themselves where they don't have to block as often or people who are like. I just want to like have the sort of rotation that I'm used to where I block, I deal damage in this part of this phase or whatever. I can, I can sort of see like different people's styles evolving out of the, out of that system at, in place. That sounds really interesting how, to me. How responsive is the blocking? You like start blocking like mid attack or do you just, is it like, is it like a deliberate action? Yes. It has to be right after an attack. <laughs> That's a tough question, but I'm, and I'm not hundred percent sure, but I'm pretty sure it is sort of the thing of you'll finish what you're doing. And then you block. It's not a character action game, but obviously you can eat quite can't a lot. Cancel of, out of animation, yeah. You can eat. You can eat quite a lot of damage anyway. Um, but it definitely does want you to block, especially against bosses. Like the, I had a lot of close calls against Airbuster. Airbuster was serious stuff. 
and the fact that it sounds like it's punishing and you actually have to kind of learn what the what they're what the dangers are where where the position should be that you can't just like sleepwalk through it that's definitely uh appealing to me yeah i think it's deceptively deceptively difficult actually and considering this is a game that they want to have such mainstream appeal i was really surprised that it's actually got some teeth to combat i think the speed runs of it will go yeah well the guy who was sitting next to me who was doing it it, like he got absolutely clattered by airbuster he didn't manage to beat it so you know that's one person obviously but I watched him do it and was fair enough. That's like, you know. I wonder if it'll be the sort of game where people who'd have different play styles, someone might run into a boss that's their kind of like their bane, where it's like the way they've been playing the game isn't compatible with the way a specific boss works. And then they go to another boss and they they just breeze through it. And while another person who plays the game slightly differently or likes to use different characters will suddenly find themselves struggling. I think that have, when people have those kind of bespoke experience to their the way they're playing, I think that's in almost every case a very good sign where instead of you know a boss just being difficult for everyone because he hits insanely hard well this is that, a very me, this, is, this is a bit of a, a an off topic but like i know i was actually talking about like the kingdom hearts super bosses recently and like i had a lot of trouble with vexen for instance and someone else thought he was really easy and we sounds like we just had like really different ways of doing combat yeah that's what i'm getting at <laughs> and it wasn't necessarily that he was hard or difficult you just have to like they're just depending on and now it's a kingdom hearts is of course a different sort of action game obviously but just sometimes bosses and patterns just sometimes some characters may or some players might pick up on it or might be able to just figure it out sooner or whatever well hypothetically this is me speaking without knowing without having played the game but let's say you like to use tifa in your stagger phases to do a lot of damage but she's so like fragile in terms of her health pool where there's a specific boss whose attack is hard to avoid where your your technique is no longer well suited just something like that where it's all of yeah. a sudden you got to say like all right what other tools are available to me maybe i can use Aerith in this place instead because of the way she attacks is more well suited to the to the arena to the boss to the moves things like that to me that I've... i'm kind of like wishful thinking here but that would be really awesome I'm convinced there's going to be a lot of depth and they seem really confident about it as well like um, Hamaguchi-san was was said multiple times that he feels really good and really confident about the combat system that they've come up with this time and I definitely think it might be the best 3D combat system in a Final Fantasy game at least since 12 I mean whether you love or hate 12 is is another question entirely (laughs) Well, uh, do you, this might be prodding a bit, but do you feel like, does that confidence that they're exuding, does it feel different, different when you compare like how they were presenting Final Fantasy 15 to how they're comparing this? Well, it's different people, I think, is the important thing. Like All Tabata right. was his own, was his own man and had a very unique way of presenting his game and stuff like that. But um, I will say that they, they, obviously I've seen some of these guys, um, for the 13 series and stuff like that. Uh, and they just, the, the feeling that I get is that they're, they're bullish and they love what they've done um, with the combat and stuff like that. And I think they're loving the response because I think it's been quite a while since they've enjoyed just pre-release, just enjoyed basking in people being really excited about their stuff. Now, question is, will that continue after, after launch or will they be wading through shit We'll see. Um, you know, I hope that the game lives up to people's expectations and therefore they are not wading through. 
through third. But um, but yeah, I mean, they seem really confident. And I, think I guess they seem, what they I seem play, to be ret- ret- retrociprocal of the genuine enthusiasm for it, which is good to see. Yeah, and from what I've played, the, with the combat especially, the, 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 the confidence is totally earned. I'm interested to see if they'll they'll continue to enhance it throughout like future episodes or this like set in stone. Well, these uh, are all the questions, but I don't think we're going to get yeah. any answers to that until after this game is shipped. Sure. But I think, but I think if they're smart, they'll start talking about game two quite soon afterwards. It does make you wonder exactly, like on a narrative standpoint, what tease, what I don't want to say cliffhanger, like what open ended. What are they going to use to 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 string you along? Like, what I wouldn't be surprised. Like- I I wouldn't be surprised if if because they're already working on the second game, right? I wouldn't be surprised if there was some sort of whether it's the subtitle of the second game or a little tease or something like that at the end of this game. I would not be surprised. Next time, um, like, is it is it going to oh, be, sort of like, sort of be like a character how- make its first appearance at the very last moment? Or it's going to be, or it's something like you know. Or it's MCU something like how films. at the end of James Bond films, they always have that text that says James Bond turn in and then they say what the title of the next film is. Like you could do something like that. Um, but I would, I, you know, I, I don't know if they will, but I wouldn't be like blown away, shocked if we did get a bit of a tease at the end of this game. Or for all we know, development might be in disarray and we might. Let's see. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, this has been a really cool uh chance to see what you've played and compare it to what uh what adam's played at e3 and a few other people uh so well i'm, I'm sure it's not that so, far off now so you're right yeah. hopefully I mean, we before would, we, we would have been month. only a few, yeah it would have only been a few weeks away and now it's just merely you know two months less but this i mean hopefully i mean you know we probably won't be able to talk about it until april but hopefully by the end of this month some of us will be playing it um but, you know some of us will have the final version for review so uh, it'll be interesting to compare notes. I'm I'm really pumped to to sort of play it and uh, especially uh, people who have the the preconceived you know their expectations or they 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 have the original games foundation in the front of their mind and then people who have no clue that are just going in maybe people who are younger or people. I'm really and we, I think we should try and I think we should try and do this, but I'm really intrigued. Even if we have to do it post launch, I'd be really intrigued for somebody who knows as little as possible about the original game to just play this and review it. Yeah, I'd well, really one thing intrigued. it's it's been a few years since I played the original, so one one of, on my March slate, I really do want to replay at least like through the first part of the game again, just so I can more easily. I want to be that person that can easily spot, oh, this is this all that stuff, yeah, order, or this is an addition because right now I just my memory is just not there because it's been years. So I, I'm a, I'm of the person where it's like I want to make sure I have that clear foundation going in of knowing what to expect yeah. and what's different, what's shifted. But maybe totally. some people are yeah. like, nope, I want to go in clean. I don't care if I don't remember the game. I, I want to see it as this, this game as it presents itself without the comparison in place. So people are just going to have their own um, their own desired way of experiencing what this game is presenting and putting forth. Yeah. Yeah. All right. It's, are there yeah, any it's, other comments on Final Fantasy VII Remake from either Alex's preview or other people's questions or anticipations for for this major release? I want to see Cloud and Sephiroth kiss. <laughs> well, let me tell you, see, here's um, the thing. Okay. Here's the thing. This is going to provide nice new high quality models for all those 
filmmakers there you go. to make whatever they want with. So I'm sure you will get your wish. I know. I'm curious to see like how Wait for those PC uh, version Right. Yeah. Cause a year after we'll have that and we'll be interesting to see how those are different. Um, I'm interested to see how red 13's like guest abilities, like, cause that's in itself kind of a bit of a tease where it's like, yeah, this character's not playable here, but you know, he's here he is in your party and people who know, know that he will be. So that, that in itself well, so is the curious of, uh, thing, look forward to this. The curious thing there, just before we finish up on this, the curious thing there is obviously they've said he's a guest, but they haven't said anything about what that will pertain and obviously in this system, you can play as Cloud and just order Barrett and Tifa. So what I wonder is, it, will Red just be will Red be a full guest in that he's fully autonomous? Or will you be able to say to him, use this ability? Will he have an ATB bar? And the only difference will be that you can't switch to him? Because that would be or really Or maybe you can switch to him, but you just can't like adjust his equipment outside of combat or something like that. We, well, yeah, if you we can switch him, I think they would call him a playable character, right? But... Maybe well, I was wondering, could... like the, the the difference would be is that your your main four you can adjust their materia and their equipment and maybe him you can't but you're right though I think it'd be more likely that you just simply but can't. this is the thing you can't even look at Final Fantasy history for that because like the guest characters in 15 you couldn't adjust their equipment but say Beatrix in nine Beatrix in nine you can adjust all her stuff except the sword because she has to have that sword for story reasons but you can change all her armor and stuff so yeah it'll be. It'll be intriguing. But yeah, I, I think, anyway, the long story short is I think it looks really, really bloody good. Um, and yeah, I've, I've, I've never felt, I feel more confident about it now than I've ever felt. But those question marks, and I think all the previews that come out of this event are all going to be glowing. But I do want to be the one to put my hand up and say, but we still don't know what that other half of the game is. Yeah. And the fact we I don't do know is so quick, to you, Yeah, since you reminded me of it, I do want to give a shout out where um, Tony, last month or the month before, put out kind of a preview piece on RPG site saying that the more he's seen of this game, the more confident he is in it. Because he's one of the old school where he has a high opinion of the original. And when this game is announced yeah. and before we saw much of it, it's easy to be like, oh, really? I don't know if they want them to touch it. But I, I just kind of your enthusiasm and the way that you said it's the best you've seen it and the most confident you've been in it just reminded me of what he wrote up, basically echoing that sentiment. Yeah, definitely. I, I don't know how much longer, how much further you going but i sort of need to get back to editing video because i've got to edit this 4k video final fantasy 7 check the youtube no, channel by the way that's no problem right lovely 4k video um so I'd, I'd love to stick around but i need to duck because i need to get this stuff done because it's due really soon <laughs> and i'm starting All to right. panic that, that is no i'm very glad that you were able to come on and, and talk about uh, what you saw and we were able to get some really good questions in and learn a whole bunch about how the game's shaping up so thank you very we much we will reconvene in like a month's time Pretty much, you know, a month or maybe maybe five weeks to talk about this again. And uh, hopefully we're all just as confident. I hope I'm not coming back in and saying all the other stuff is crap and the only the stuff that's right. a remake is good. So, fingers crossed. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Right, thank you. Thank you, Alex. See ya. All right. So before we get into the rest of the uh, topics of the week, because Final Fantasy VII isn't the only thing that we want to talk about on this cast, I do want to give a quick shout out to another game that released in the last uh, week or so is Hero Must Die, which James already kind of discussed that at length. But I did want to mention that he did put together a really nice uh, video review for our YouTube channel. So do check that out. James, I don't know if you had any other further comments on that or we'll just let the video speak for itself. Yeah, video basically speaks for itself. Like, pretty big video, too, like 12 minutes long or something like that. 
Right. And just speaking in general a little bit, you have kind of inspired me to maybe start looking at more video content on my end. So maybe people who are listening can look forward to that. Not not guaranteeing anything, but I do think that there is an avenue for kind of releasing some of our impressions that way to kind of give a, a visual aid to what we're talking about. But I think I think other, uh, oh, before before we move on, I think it's also kind of cool like uh James's like process of like since it is one of like the more you know first times to add on making the video and like like just more more behind the scenes of like how did you feel about like finally getting your hands on like compiling a video review together like going through the editing i have about 10 times more respect for any youtuber than when i before i started (laughs) because like when you make a video review you basically have to make a written review first if you want the video review to be any good because you need to have a script Mm-hmm. Yeah. So baseline, I, it's at least as much work as a written review. Then you also have to capture footage. You need to record audio. You need to make sure the audio levels are right. Make need to make sure that there's no background noise. Something I admit that I need to work on next time around. But I'm sure it's, people listening to the podcast know it's not exactly the most sound isolated room that I have access to. Um, but yeah, there's that. Then there's like the actual video editing itself, which even once you get the footage, if you want to have like good cuts to showcase what you're talking about in the audio, that's a lot of work. Like, um, and really it's something that you can't really just tell someone. No, like, definitely um, not. Yeah, Brian like can back me up here. It's like all right. My main takeaway is I haven't done a video review in a couple of years, but I am eager to start again this year at some point. Uh, the last one that I did was Pillars of Eternity to Deadfire in um, May of 2018. And two comments. One, I will mention the audio levels thing because my first video review, when I listen to it now, I'm like really quiet and I'm almost like embarrassed by it. But I'm going to keep it there because then I I can kind of use that as a reference point. Uh, But also the second comment is that the amount of footage that you need is probably like 5x what you think you need. If I record like three hours of footage. Well, that's just me. Uh, it could be 10x. I don't know. But yeah, and it's, I, maybe, it's way maybe better I, to record more than less. Like, it's yeah, just good to have a surplus. So I, I would record like hours of just raw gameplay. And then by the time I cut it up and like put it in a video, it's far less than you think because obviously you don't want to you don't want to retread like a single boss, boss battle might be, a, you know, six minutes, but you don't want that to be even like a, a minute of your review, let alone more than one. So long story short, you record hours of footage, but by the time you cut it up and order it and transition it in the way you want, you're getting you need more footage than you initially think that you need. That was my experience when I first met a couple Yeah, like I'm actually looking through it right now and I'm pretty sure the the length of all the footage I captured was at least like three hours, like everything put together. And, and that was only a twelve minutes. minute review. Yeah. And, and it's one of those it's like it I think it's always good to like it's a good skill to like learn. It's a, it's always a process. It's kind of a bit of a grind, but it's it's good to have like a just a knowledge base for it, like in the future. Because there's there's just more than just video game reviews. It's like if it's something that'll maybe jive with you. It's like it's definitely a life skill that's uh, worth looking into if that catches your attention. So well, it's, it's kind of equal parts uh, creative, but also like what's the opposite of creative? Mathematic. <laughs> like there's, yeah, there's a the, technical side yeah. and there's a creative side. Is what I'm getting at. Yeah, you're 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 like practicing multiple skills at once. It's a lot of 
creative as well. You're for, uh, practicing directing, producing, and all the technical side of that. It's just it's it's an interesting process to just kind of get your feet wet on that. So, yeah. So yep, here almost die. We got a video review. It'll echo James's thoughts that he mentioned on the podcast. I think two weeks ago. Very interesting looking game. Uh, I don't know if you had any other further things to say. Nope. All right, so check that out. It's kind of, I don't know if I'll get around to it, but it is something that I am much more intrigued about what that's putting forward than I was before I was able to hear uh, kind of James talk about how unique it is in, in the way that it, it kind of organizes what, you, what you'd expect out of an RPG. All right, so for the topics of the week, we don't have too many more to go through, though obviously it is PAX East right now. So there's a mainly one key thing that's come out of there, which you might already know what we're going to talk about there. But we'll leave that for the end uh, or near the end. But uh, the next topic that we want to talk about is we learned about this late last year, but a follow-up to the Brigadine series, which I don't know if Adam might be able to speak most about this, but about what this kind of this re-envisioning of the game is. And it's like a four-minute trailer. It's got some excellent music. It's got some artwork by Raida Kazama, who did the original like 2D art for Xenoblade Chronicles and Chronicles X. To me, when I watched this trailer, it looks like almost kind of like a hybrid between the classic Japanese strategy RPG, like tactics or whatever you want to call it, uh, whatever one comes to mind for that. And then like a PC like strategy game because of the way like the map is designed and the hexagonal grid. So it looks really intriguing to me. I don't know if you had any further things to say on that, Adam. I mean, I don't think anyone else, any of us here have played the original. Have anyone I uh, all I have is some uh, a few friends who are very deeply passionate yeah. about the original. I, I know, know like one person. <laughs> like they're, they're they're like amazed at like how faithful this is to like the original game. Like definitely like how certain magical spells and their sound effects and whatnot. They're like, yep, that's Brigadine, all right. So that's it's my a, only basis. It seems like Brigadine was a niche release on PlayStation One, but had some sort of I guess you could call it a cult following. Or like fan base that people who played it. Oh yeah, this, this it. seems like the smallest occult following. Yeah, but really, so the fact that this game, that frankly, a lot of people like I had heard of it, but you know, aren't super familiar with the fact that it's getting a revival now is you know twenty two years later or whatever. It, it's kind is, of wild because me and you like are very like into niche RPGs. Like if there's like something like. And some weird PS1 niche RPG thing. It's like, oh yeah, we probably played that back. In, but now, this, but this is like one that's like really slipped under our radars. Even that, even then. Yeah, well, I think so, I inadvertently um, buried the lead. Is that uh, it, this is releasing for Switch on June 25th? That's what the trailer was announcing because the game was announced in existence late last year, but just this last week that was the new news. So I think that's uh, like a worldwide that's coming out for summer. Also. Yeah, uh, yeah, and yep, and it's. Okay, so this game is being developed by Matrix Software. More recently, they did those Omega Labyrinth games. Uh, but they also did a ton of like Square Enix porting for DS and other platforms for like Dragon Quest and Final Fantasy. And they also did the uh they did like the 3D remakes of Final Fantasy 3 and Final Fantasy 4. So, this developer has been around a while and has a history of development and has made some original games. Uh but they're the ones actually making this revival. And I don't know if this game, I don't know if they really said if it's supposed to be like an actual <laughs> sequel or more just uh, in the same world as the original, like in terms of story stuff. I don't really know. 
but it's basically just a revival of the IP and it's being published by HappyNet. HappyNet, I looked them up, looks like they mostly have done like Japanese adventure type games. So not, not too big of a presence. But like Josh said, this game is getting a worldwide release this summer. So, you know, just releasing simultaneously in Japanese and in English. Uh, in the West, it'll be a digital title mostly, but they are partnering with Limited Run Games to do like a physical release, obviously a limited physical release. They probably don't expect it to sell a ton being a niche series, but for people who like to collect, people who like these sort of games and maybe this is to keep their attention, they'll be able to buy a physical copy if they go through the Limited Run Games avenue. Can we take a moment to just appreciate how like specifically limited run games doing a lot of good for like uh championing these like smaller japanese like maybe not quite indie games but like obviously very low profile like yeah, i mean it seems, like, it seems like lately they've been doing a really good job at like kind of getting out for those even uh, unlike other publishers where you might have to like they have systems in place where they probably have to sell so many units to make it worthwhile or whatever seems like limited run has they've specifically built their model around their name where they can create these short print runs of these games and partner with public uh, partner with these developers and release them and have to be a successful venture for them so it, it just kind of they 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 filled a niche that needed to be filled in a way so it's cool that they can do that yeah i don't have an opinion too strict too strong on uh because i don't buy a lot of physical games it's just how i just kind of how i operate not really a lot of decision making behind that but for the people who that is important to them it's very cool that they that they do have the support at least to that level for games like this you kind of expect a game of this scope to be digital only and they say nope we're giving this a physical release a legit physical release not just a code in a box for people who want it and that's important to them yeah you you can kind of like i know some people might view this from the more negative angle like, oh, limited run. Why don't they just give it an actual, like, full print run, like, from a publisher? So that, and it is getting, like, a limit, a physical release in Japan, like, an actual, like, limited physical release you can buy from HappyNet. But I think, I think it's probably more apt to approach this on the positive end in that if limited run didn't exist, this game would probably not get any, any sort of physical release at all. So uh, let me check something because I know the way it works for limited run games is that. They have two different types of releases. They have um, ones that they already have the print run ready, and then there's like a there's from the get go there's a limited number of games total, and then they have pre orders. Um, so if this is a pre order, then that means is is that you don't have to worry about how many copies are made as long as you pre order it, you get a copy. So now I know they didn't really while, give any while details James looks at it I was going yeah. to say, while James looks that up, uh, one thing that I like, as someone who uh, has only really played like the lightest Japanese strategy RPGs, like Tactics and Fire Emblem, like not really something that's more in-depth and or more involved, I look at this and it almost seems like it's more, um, it's like the next level where it's like, it like I compared it to like those PC strategy games where it almost looks like really uh, cerebral, uh, really kind of, uh, like you have to sink a lot of time into it before you kind of learn the systems at play. Cause the trailer that they release is like five minutes and it shows a lot. Like there's a specific part of the trailer where it shows like a unit and there's some like monster capturing aspects here or, or summons or partners and like exactly sure how it's set up where it shows like a unicorn character specifically removing a like uh, petrification debuff on an ally. Like that's how kind of like this trailer isn't just an overview and doesn't actually show like the, the, 
the meat of the game. It does show it. And it, it looks like really like something that you could, if you're really into that tactical style gameplay, that deliberate planning and strategy, that this this will have it in spades. That's my, that's fact, my takeaway. Well, in fact, when they when Happy Net like describes this game, actually, let me look it up. They don't really call it a strategy RPG. They call it a strategy game with RPG elements. So that's that's yeah, kind of go. how they're approaching. That's it. what that's what I wanted to say in, in a bit fewer words, I guess. I also do really appreciate the art style because it's kind of different. You can I can sort of see that DNA of the original like Xenoblade uh, art in there, but it also looks like it's a little bit blended with that kind of uh, that tactics art, uh, but not really. I, I, that artist that artist also did a very niche game called Stranger of Sword City, and it's a dungeon crawler game. And it's kind of got like this gothic style to it. I don't know how else to describe it. Oh, like, it's that same artist. Yes. Oh, um, I'm I'm actually way more interested in this game. Yeah, now. it's got like that and gothic again, style to it, um, with the like more muted colors. It looks like Brigadine is going in on a lot of like the dark golds and purples and blacks and grays. That sort of that sort of style with gothic style like armor and headpieces and things like that. So it's not even it's like how do I put this? It's not a very like anime look, but more like this gothic Japanese look to it. So, yeah, it's still very. It's still. It's still. It's got Japanese, that. but it's it doesn't not like it, colorful anime bubbly that you often see. I don't like. That, I don't uh, think Limited Run Games has like given any details on how this game will be. Yeah, they just said that. more details. Though looking at their most recent releases, uh, this will probably be a pre-order, so it won't be like limited from the get-go. It's just whoever pre-orders gets it. But again, yeah. they haven't announced it yet. That's just my assumption because most of their stuff recently has been that. But yeah, the full title is Brigadine, Legend of Rune Seria. Comes out for Switch in June. Worldwide release, physical release mm-hmm. if you want it. Yeah, Rune Seria, right? Runeria. I'm getting my NNS finger. Runeria. But it's a Brigadine follow up to a cult classic, I guess is the kind of terminology we're going with, PS1 game. For those that really kind of want the tactical variety of their RPGs, uh, it definitely looks like it's something that's up my alley. Something I kind of want to try to get something that's a bit more involved in something like uh, Fire Emblem or Final Fantasy Tactics or Tactics Advance. So. Well, what if it becomes the Saga Scarlet Grace of this year? Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, Game of the Year. Yeah, so, yeah, there we go. And then, and then we'll talk well, about it, this it, the first six podcasts next year, maybe. Well, why don't you come out and just be like, shit. <laughs> yeah, we really don't know because none of us really have like uh, any sort well, of. It's a new developer, and, and you know. That's true, yeah. <laughs> Well, I guess to even call it a series is a bit silly because uh, yeah. it's, it's just <laughs> a, it's a, it's a follow like, up to a to a sing for, to a standalone experience. So now it's a series. Where you're it just feels like something different, and that's interesting on its own. No, I'm with you, and I don't know what you mean by that. It's something that stands out just by the premise, let, let alone how it's actually executed. But the premise itself is kind of it stands out in its own right. All right, so now to go back to a game that we talked about on the podcast a couple weeks ago, which I'll hand this off to Josh in a second, is uh, Grand Blue Fantasy Versus, which obviously has an Asian release that people have been playing in English already through imports. Uh, In this last week, we've learned two new pieces of news. We've learned that the European release through Marvelous is going to be March uh, 27th. I believe, yes. And then it's going to have a PC release between the the, uh, the original XE North American release and the Marvelous European release on the 13th uh, on Steam. 
So this is a very interesting kind of weird, unique situation where people are already playing it in English. It's got an upcoming English release in North America and then a Steam release worldwide, you'd assume, and then a European release. So I don't know how to boil uh, that it's, down. It's really it's weird. A so, the, so the PC release was shortly revealed after the trailer of the second DLC character in Narmaya. Um, both she and uh, Beelzebub, the first two DLC characters coming to the game, part of uh, the season pass one of that game will be launching on uh, March 3rd, the same day as the English release of the PS4 version. Um, so this presents a weird situation because when they announced the PC version coming at March 13th, um, it was mentioned in a, I think it was a Famitsu article that Exceed and Marvelous USA was handling the port of it. So, and it was, it was news to the European branch that it was going to have a, a PC release or whether they just found out or they knew behind the scenes and they finally made it known, who knows, but obviously marvelous Europe, um, not really thrilled about this situation. There was a deleted tweet from one of the staff members on it, uh, say basically saying thanks side games on, uh, that part of it. And it's, it's a messy situation. Um, obviously this is side games is, um, technically first global release of their IP. They did uh, the port of, or not, not the port, but the remake of Zone of the Enders, the second runner, and whatnot, but that but that distribution was through Konami. Um, so obviously there's going to be hump, like humps along the way on trying to get their, this new uh, game out to the whole, the whole world and whatnot, and the release dates are kind of fumbled, but it, it does paint a weird picture of having the Steam release of the English version of this game come out nearly two weeks before the European version of the PS4 release. And this is a game that's already been kind of having problems with, like, PS4 loading times, even on the Pro. And, like, a PC version would be desirable to, like, kind of mitigate those. And, you know, you have the weird split already before the European release of, like, the console versus... Uh, PC because uh, they also announced with this that there will be no car- crossplay with them, and there, uh, of course there will be, you know, no changes to the netcode or whatnot. So it's all delayed, delayed based, and so and the it's PC uh, also in a weird spot where the PS4 version comes with this serial code for the mobile game, right? That the PC version just doesn't have, and it it's got to be putting like Xe in a kind of shitty situation because to them they have no control over those. I can only like see it. Them. It's a, it's like the mobile serial code is, you know, a lot of people uh, over here probably won't care if they already, uh, like, if they already cared for it, they already probably bought the game. But it is, it is still on paper the fact that it'll be fifty nine ninety nine on both the uh, console version and the PC release. And what you get, what you're paying with that fifty nine ninety nine, you'll get more out of it with the console version than the PC version because, because people are selling that code for over 40 bucks on eBay. Yeah. And, and there's extra value to people who are already like fervently like playing the, like the mobile game because the items you get um, from that serial code do have significant value. If you are playing the mobile game, like that there's actually like good progression items and like, you know, gotcha currency and whatnot, but the real, you know, item uh, in there is the one uh, that, it's one of the four selectable uh, items that you can pick from that serial code. 
when you put it into the game. Um, so it's just, but to like kind of uh, treat like the PC like uh, buyers like almost like kind of like second class citizens. Well, it's clear why they're doing it though. It's because of Steam's refund policy. Because yeah. the way you get that um, serial code, at least one part of it, is by beating the story, mo- or is it the arcade mode? So, so you you get the one the one that actually has value off the off the get go. Um, you can just retrieve it right away because that's from purchasing the game. Uh, all all the other stuff, like the the three the five thousand gacha currency, is for beating uh, the story mode once, and then um, the other the third serial code, which is either an outfit. That was hard to obtain beforehand, or if you already have that out- outfit, extra gacha currency. That's for beating the uh, RPG mode on hard mode. So the the real value, the real serial code that you want out of it, is just about from buying the game and just retrieving it immediately. So yes, I guess uh, I. That, and ob- it's obvious now when you bring up the uh, Steam refund. Like I, I wasn't thinking of that, but it's, oh, there you go. That would have been easily exploitable. So yeah. Well, Unless they worked that, out something also, with it, with the with the um, whether or not you consider Steam a platform or, or a storefront. I mean, you can also get a refund for PSN games as well. So not nearly as easily. Not nearly as easily, but you can still do it. I can still just buy the game on PSN. And say, okay, well, I don't really like the game. Can you give me a refund? And then um, likely- you. I'm just gonna tell you from experience that doesn't happen. <laughs> like I'm pretty sure between all of the uh, console manufacturers, like Sony is the most difficult to get refunds with. They are stingy, but it has happened. They, it's not like there have been cases where it's never been a refund. There's a they higher I had to argue with uh, Sony customer support for a good half an hour because their uh, PlayStation Plus thing charged me twice for a, a refill. And it was like legitimately an error on their end. And they said, well, we'll do this for you just this once. And it's like, yeah, I, I don't believe that it would be feasible to tell people, oh, well, we, refunds are also on PlayStation. Yeah, yeah. I guess. They, they, they do exist. The like a, look, PC. it's not as easy as Steam, for sure. But to say that there's never been a PSN refund, like it's, you can still get PSN refunds. You have to go through more extra steps. Yeah. But yes, it is considerably more difficult than Steam. Yeah. But again, like my whole point is, is that like XE had nothing to do with this decision, like guaranteed. So the fact, and obviously they're going to want to sell the PC version because they're the ones publishing it on Steam, right? Uh, I think so. Yeah, because it's actually last I checked, it wasn't on Steam yet. But XE are well, it's got to be XE because they're the ones actually advertising the PC version. They wouldn't yeah. do that otherwise. But um, yeah, like. To them, it's the same game. There is no reason why they would want to have to sell the PC version for less. And it's like in a shitty situation for them because it's like, objectively, it, you're getting a worse deal, a rather significantly worse deal, depending on if you well, want to I mean, if, if you don't care about the mobile game at all, that it's not a big deal. Yeah, but if you don't care about it, you can still sell that code. You can, or you can just, like, just buy it for the game itself and just treat it as a yeah. the game. So, I mean, it's, it's different and, value propositions. I, I just feel bad for Xe here because I know that they didn't want to be put in the situation. I mean, a lot of their feels like a lot of side games as Western partners with this release they don't want to be put in this situation. But business is business. Yeah. And just to follow up, you're right that this doesn't have a like store page yet. It's just been announced for the platform, so we don't know. We don't really know like we don't have any like PC assets or anything 
or anything. Like They've announced the price, though, so we do know it's the same price. Yeah, yeah but, so that's what we're discussing. But but yeah, uh, Grand Blue Fantasy in a weird place with its release date, with its uh, split on terms of who's playing it in English from which store or which region, uh, and then obviously with this code. It's But I guess... Well, before we move on, like, how do how do we feel about it itself? As, as, I don't know if Josh has like a strong opinion. I mean, about it's this a game. it's a it's a fine fighting game, you know. I mean, I don't have any strong feelings one way or the other. I think it's it's competent. It's it's fairly fun to play. I'm looking forward to trying out the DLC characters, you know. But you know, I, I've said my piece on the RPG mode. I think it's 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 okay, but it's like it's fairly slim in, in its offerings. If you're not planning to play the fighting game aspect itself. I think I think it's a fun time. I'm definitely well, interested good. in playing the PC version. It's like, um, I would have gotten it on PS4, but I had a feeling that a PC version was going to be announced sooner rather than later. I didn't expect it this early. Yeah, I didn't expect it this early. I think. Yeah, but, uh, but, yeah I think uh, it kind of all took us by surprise. This will. This will. It'll be interesting to see what lessons have been learned all around from this release and how that all translate to the. Uh, release of the grand, the other Grand Blue Fantasy game, which is more of an RPG, which is Grand Blue Fantasy Relink. Uh, there's no release date on that yet. We just know it's coming to PS4. We don't know if it's coming to PC, but now it's looking like it probably might be. Uh, well, I mean, just so. going by this, like even if they don't say PC, like <laughs> there's a good chance they'll just announce it like within yeah, a few weeks. Maybe. So we'll, we'll see what happens with that release. All right, so that's it for Grand Blue Fantasy, and I'm also the I'm all, I'm in kind of James's spot where I'm interested in maybe introducing myself to the series through this fighting game potentially, but I'm really looking forward to that relink, which obviously is just kind of undated and just kind of waiting for it at the moment. Uh, at, like I mentioned at the very start of this cast, it is PAX East right now, and in a lot of ways, at least in my opinion, the headliner for at the time PAX of this East, recording. yeah, has been. Uh, the reveal of Baldur's Gate 3 in terms of its actual like gameplay style. Uh, it's We had the opening cinematic from E3 last year, but that's all we've had since. And uh, I think I might just hand this over to uh, Adam, who has had a chance to see a hands-on demo. Well, I guess he got to see a demo of the game from the developers. But Baldur's Gate 3, the main thing that we saw is that it does rhyme a lot with the Divinity games. It is turn-based, and I don't know how we feel about that. What do we What do we think about it, Adam? Okay, so I think last week I might have mentioned that I, I went on a I, I visited a studio, but I couldn't talk about it, and that was I visit I went to uh, San Francisco to meet with Larian, and they did a hands off demo, basically the same sort of demo they showed at uh, at PAX um, just yesterday as of this recording, but we got to see a, a longer demo. It was about three hours total versus like an hour and a half, and after that demo, I then got got to interview. Uh, Matt Holland, who is the gameplay designer for both Divinity Original Sin 2 and this game. So being the gameplay designer, I, of course, asked him a bunch about the combat and the styles, the fact that it is turn-based. So if you saw the demo, we saw, we if in knowing the classic Baldur's Gate series, Baldur's Gate, the original games developed by BioWare, were a real-time with pause system. So everything happens, you know, in real time. But you, the player, have the capability to pause it at any time to set up, you know, okay, I want this character to do this. I want this character to use this item or whatnot. Now, Larian, being the new developers here, have all their games have been turn-based, I'm pretty sure, especially their most recent games. 
So it wasn't too much of a stretch to find that Baldur's Gate 3 would also be turn-based. It's not the same style of turn-based, though. So, like, Divinity Original Sin, it's, like, pure turn-based, where each character gets their own turn, and they move in a turn order. When it's a character's turn, they must perform an action or skip, you know. Um, Here, it's more like a phase-based system, where you have your party, it's their turn, and then you can move and have your characters act in this game basically in any order you want, however suits your strategy. And that's really the thing, is that this game, when I saw the demo and what, you see, what we saw in PAX East, it feels a very like a very tactical game. A lot of positioning, a lot of environmental interaction, a lot of uh, planning and preparing for, 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 for various attacks and things like that. And that's one thing that I, when I got to talk to Matt Holland about the game, that I asked him questions about, like, the fact that it is turn-based, how do you make sure that combat stays engaging? How do you make sure that the pace of the game doesn't struggle being turn-based? And he, his general stance on it was basically that, so Baldur's Gate is a Dungeons & Dragons RPG. And Dungeons & Dragons, like if you've ever played the tabletop game, is turn-based. So this is a recreation of that. It's inherently turn-based. They said when he, uh, when they were looking into what they wanted to do with this game, they felt that that made the most sense. And that's what they wanted to do. Yeah, this is and, adapting the the most recent rule set, the fifth edition of D. Yeah, so if I remember and right, the it, original it Baldur's Gate was. Face. Yeah, the original Baldur's Gate, I believe, was second edition, and then this is fifth. So not only are the developers and their styles changed, but the the pen and paper game that it's being adapted from has changed. So mm-hmm. it's kind of to to have to have expected it to look significantly different. I think is kind of was obvious but also so i've seen i've basically seen two two groups of people say the same thing about this reveal i've seen people say oh wow it's like divinity colon baldur's gate and people being enthusiastic about that and then people saying like this isn't baldur's gate this is just this is just divinity original sin 3 dungeon dragons edition like very cynically so people who have different levels of passion about what a baldur's gate game should be or like basically how much how much is this stepping on the toes of the idea of is this this sounds silly but is this acceptable and i think that's i i look at this and i I believe it showed four party members turn-based we have a slight difference in how the turn-based is implemented in terms of phase versus pure initiative um and i guess i'm not really that bothered by it i'm i kind of expect that's a different developer they're going to have their own take their own flavor on the game uh, as someone who's played both Divinity and the original Baldur's Gates, one I thing also really... to keep in mind, and I think Baldur's Gate Two had some component of multiplayer as well, but they I wanted think... this to feel they wanted this to feel like an that it could be if you wanted it to be like an online game version of a session of Dungeons and Dragons. So multiplayer was a big thing that they are considering here, and also sounds like multiplayer in Divinity: Original Sin was also a big reason for his success. A lot of people like to play that with a friend. So one reason they well, did this sort of... To set the table a little bit, um, yes, especially the first game. So in the original... So two, two comments. The first comment is, in Original Sin 1, you basically create two characters. And those two characters mm-hmm. is either a dual protagonist or two-player co-op. And 
that's not what Baldur's Gate 3 is, but it seems to have that through line of we're designing this game where you could pick a buddy and play through it start to finish completely like and it, do, it doesn't feel it feels like that's the design intent. But then borrowed from Baldur's from um, the original, Divinity Original Sin 2 is this origin system where you're you're you have a pool of pre-written characters and then you pick one of those to be your protagonist who will have obviously the through line of the story follow them as well as their own personal protagonist specific story so it feels like it does and though and with those two descriptions in place it does feel like a natural extension of divinity original sin games and you might say then why why isn't this a divinity original sin game but then obviously you can look at what they're borrowing from the dungeon and dragons just rule set mythos world the sword coast in general we see in the um cinematic trailer the 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 gith yankee party member which i i don't i'm not too Baldur's gate is my only exposure to dungeons and dragons really so if it wasn't something introduced specifically in there then i'm less aware of it but i do see people say like they see this and like finally i get the yankee party member and i don't know much about it but to see people excited about that i'm i'm like vicariously excited to see that uh but there, but there are people who, who see this and be like i they'd be more at, at peace with it if this was just simply a divinity game with a different rule set one reason that they decided to do like this phase-based system is that when you're playing in multiplayer, now you can have like two people sort of acting at the same time rather than it being, oh, it's my turn and now it's your turn and now it's my turn. Like it just, they felt that for multiplayer that made the most sense to have like, okay, now it's your team, it's your team's turn. And I think it's like either two player local or four player online multiplayer. And so while I know not everyone's going to play this game in multiplayer, that is one thing they really wanted to make sure that like multiplayer didn't feel like awkward or a struggle to get into like they wanted it to feel like a really natural game so that's why they went with this system in general but also you know turn base is what they do um turn base they like i said they felt that that's what meant what what made sense for dungeons and dragons because that's that's when you play a tabletop game it's turn based obviously uh so that's what they did and basically what they told me is kind of what you'd expect when you're doing a multiplayer session you can you can either use origin characters or create totally custom characters that don't have an origin story, you know, however you want. And then when you do multiplayer, whether it's two player or four player, you basically just decide, all right, these characters I control, these characters you control. It's drop in, drop out. So if someone has to go to work or whatever, you know, it's the characters still exist in that session in your game. It's just depending on like, all right, I'll just take control of these characters again, sort of thing. So, and that's part now, of otherwise, the when I, I would say that's part of the reason that they kind of, I don't know if they talked about it a lot. I didn't really feel like they did, but the reason why they're releasing on Stadia is because they think that that will be conducive to this ease of access mm-hmm. to their multiplayer. Yeah. Now, maybe moving away from combat a bit. Other, I guess, other things of combat they showed verticality in the game. That's one thing they that Matt emphasized to me was they wanted it to be like more tactical and that you could have more importance on like where your, your character is actually positioned. And you can, you saw in the demo we showed at PAX that your success in battle isn't just based on things like your dice rolls and how lucky you are, but you know, how you strategize, how you approach the counter, where your characters are positioned and things like that. So, and throwing your boots to defeat an enemy is a very kind of almost stereotypical classic Dungeon Dragon's yeah, move. Yeah, that's very D <laughs> Yeah, so 
they wanted it to feel like Dungeons and Dragons. Now, otherwise, stepping away a bit from the combat a bit, uh, the look of the game, it's it's still like an isometric game, but the camera is not as pulled as far back as what you classically see. Um, and there's even a, there's even like a third-person mode where your camera follows your characters more directly behind them. I saw some people kind of compare that to Dragon Age Origins. Uh, both the vis- camera style and also the visual style is similar to, to the original Dragon Age instead of using instead of using portraits and dialogue boxes uh for for characters and speaking there's actually like fully modeled characters with 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 mocap and and voice acting they said there's something like one and a half million lines so it's a big game they promise of course we can't see this in a demo but they promise that there's going to be a lot of permutations depending on what characters you pick what decisions you make there's role playing decisions you're making in combat one of the examples that Matt gave to me was if you have an NPC, there's, there might be some combat encounters, and I saw one in the demo where you, there's an NPC who is in danger and you ha- might save their life. You might have to go out of your way to protect them, or if you don't care, you might just use them as bait and they'll die. And depending on what happens, that could affect the future and what quests are available to you and how the cutscenes play out. Of course, there's more dialogue-based role-playing as well. You know, who you, who you choose to attack, who you choose to friend. So there's supposedly going to be a, a lot of different permutations on how the story unfolds based on your actions, both in dialogue and combat. Of course, that's something you just kind of have to experience to see how well it works. And so it looks to be a really big undertaking for them. I think they say they have more, more than 300 people working on the game. It's going to be their biggest game uh, so far. It's going to be a soft rollout, too. They're going to yes. go into early access first. Uh, they didn't give a date yet, but they said whenever it's ready... Yeah, I think they. I think they said there's going to be eight classes or eight races, six classes, and five origin characters that they want to have ready for early access, and I, the first act. And, and then, if I remember right, the origin characters, their gender and race are specified because it's part of their story, but their class isn't. If I remember right, and that's how it worked in Divinity too. Think, so even though you're not locked in place in term, even if you pick one of those. I'm not sure. <laughs> I guess we'll, we'll, we'll issue a correction if that's not the case, but that's how it worked in Original Sin 2. Uh, they had a good reveal, though. I, I really enjoyed what they showed at PAX oh, East. Yeah. I, yeah. yeah, it seems like a very promising, very ambitious project. So it was a very, speaking about the reveal itself, it, it, it was kind of refreshing to have not like a staged, choreographed presentation. Yeah, they just went into it. And that's how they did our demo, like for press, you know, privately before this reveal as well. And it was similarly fun, like, you know, Mm -hmm. audience laughter when things don't go right. And like something has a has a dice check of five. So it's like you have a 75 percent chance of making it or more than 75, actually. But uh, I I have more confidence in this game than if they were to, to do a more official formal reveal. But it's just, like, it's just I, fun I, to I, see. I like the scrappiness of it. Oh yeah, it's fun to see, see Sven say like, "Oh, I should be able to get this roll," and then he rolls a two. You know, yeah, that's just how it works sometimes. Now, in my demo that I saw, he was maybe luckier, but also maybe just smarter in that there were some really bad rolls and also some some decisions he made when he was playing where he was just like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. That was really dumb. But he was able to win. And that's, that's, that's kind of a a good port. That's a good aspect of strategy games for me. Where you're not so 
you shouldn't be so beholden to how lucky you are in your dice rolls. Like that is a component. And sometimes you'll get lucky and that'll make things easier for you. But also you, a good strategy game that uses like a chance system like this. If you're a good player, you should be able to work with the cards you're given and work around it, make smart decisions and maximize your opportunities. And in, in our demo, he Sven did not die. He was able to work around his, his stupid role, his stupid decisions and bad roles and win. Um, he wasn't so lucky at PAX where he actually had, he actually did get a game over and had to start over. But that is one thing that Matt emphasized to me was they wanted to focus a lot on these things like strategy and tactical elements to it. So you're not just, I have to roll a 20 here or else I'm screwed. So I, I am what going for. I think one of the most insightful uh, comments I read out of all of this uh, is like this, this, what they showed so far is like the most faithful recreation of D and D fifth edition, like actually being played like, in front of you as like a as a video game like the all the systems of D 5e like kind of like spelled out for you and seeing like the gears in motion in vi- like in visual form mm-hmm. and let's see speaking of like the storyline this game is set 100 years after the Baldur's gate 2 roughly i know it actually does have a tie-in where it more directly comes after out of a uh, a new relatively recent tabletop uh, campaign that released. I forget what it's called. Descent of something. Um, Descent into Avernus. Oh, that's it. So it's it's one of those things where that is sort of a, a Wizards of the Coast thing, I would imagine, where they, they wanted it to basically be a continuation of this sort of storyline. And if you have played that, things might have a little bit more context to them. But obviously this being a 20 years late sequel... And admittedly, a lot of people probably haven't played the original games or it's been a long time. They don't want it to be, they didn't want it to be like a direct sequel. You have to understand what happens here before you play this game. No, there's enough time difference. It's contextualized in its own way. I think one of the examples they gave, and you saw, or maybe you didn't see this, maybe I saw this. So I think one of the things happening is that there's this tiefling. Tiefling are like the devil looking guys. Um, there's these, there's this tiefling uh, happening where they're now refugees in Baldur's Gate. And I believe in Baldur's Gate 3, based on the demo I saw, you sort of see these tiefling refugees in Baldur's Gate and you can interact with them. And you sort of just accept, oh, they're refugees. But if you've played this tabletop campaign, you kind of know the context, oh, this is why they're refugees. Things like that is what I imagine you'll run into. A very smart balance where you don't feel like you're missing out if you haven't played it, but you do get the context and kind of the general, you, you get the premise a little bit more solidly if you have, So, which is always a tough now, balancing act. Another thing that comes to mind, and before I forget, so in terms of the uh, like the dialogue system, I'm not sure if Divinity Original Sin has anything like this. I admittedly have not played it. So like when you're choosing dialogue in the game, you're not picking... Like the original Baldur's Gate games, you would pick exactly what you want to say, like your actual words your character says. But in this game, it's more like a narration of what your character said at that point, where it would be like, I told this person my name, or I told them to... Ironically enough, um, Divinity, at least the original Sin, well, original Sin 2, what I've played, was more like the older Baldur's Gate in that regard. Right, but uh, so actually, let me just pull up a screenshot here. So the, but yeah, the the dialogue choices in Baldur's Gate three are more. They're not like verbatim lines, but more just kind of like general stances that your character can have uh, about 
uh, a situation. So for example, there's a line here. I said that was enough. More goblins are coming. Or a druid, I asked what happened. I said I was owed for my help at the gate. So you don't actually you're picking like stances and i think that's kind of interesting it's kind of interesting yeah like it's it's no, more, that is different. You're, you're picking more of like your general sentiment to the situation rather than what you're and also they they do bring up or sven talked about how and this is expected in an rpg you'll have different dialogue choices if you're a certain origin character like obviously if you're esteron Estarion, the vampire you'll have choices to to suck blood or threaten to suck blood um, you have different you have different uh, dialogue choices depending on your race. Like there's this one here. If you're an elf, you can tell this tiefling that they should give thanks for I said that they should give <sighs> thanks for surviving the assault. And there's also going to be different dialogue choices based on your background. Um, I think Astarion, the player they played as, was a noble. So as a noble, he'll have different character or had different uh, choices he can make. And also, I assume there's going to be different choices based on what you do in the game. You know, just like any good RPG. So it looks really promising. I'm not sure if I'll bother with the early access. I, I'm kind of one of those people. I just want to see the full, complete yeah, yeah, project. <laughs> I'm, I'm like, definitely... I understand why they do it. Yeah, I, I'm interested to see, like, what the final threads look like in terms of, like, what the, like, what the branches look like in, the, in this game. Mm-hmm. Right, because some because they always like no no RPG developer is going to be like nah it's pretty railroad like they're always going to say that it branches and you right. never get the full picture until you play through the game twice or more to really see mm-hmm. like man I really ended up at a different place. Uh, two comments that I do want to say is that I have seen some people. Well, first of all, I do want to say that I, I also appreciate like the scrappiness. Uh, it reminds me actually of when they first revealed Vampire the Masquerade. Uh, Bloodlines 2. It was done in like this really silly, like stage play almost type thing where it was like it was like built out of an, uh, an augmented reality game. And it was just like it wasn't a press release in a, in a trailer. It was it was goofy. It was silly. It was in a way cringy. And then I, there's something that's just more genuine about that. I don't think I'd want every single game to be revealed that way. But it's cool to see just the, the style difference comparing this to like uh, a traditional Kickstarter like Pillars of Eternity or or oh, or or like um, something more like like a, like say a Japanese stage play presentation of like hey here's just some PowerPoint slides here's the first PowerPoint slide to explain what our game is here's the second PowerPoint slide of like which platforms it's coming out on here's the third one introducing yeah. the characters etc cetera, etc cetera, etc cetera. and then like the very end after like half an hour it's like here's like a, a minute new trip thanks and I have seen uh, yeah I have seen some people. Uh, really concerned that this game was going to be too silly because the, the original games are such serious things. And I, I've played through Baldur's Gate last year, and Adam's playing through it now, and they have a pretty ex- not extensive. They they they're regularly really kind of irreverent, silly, yeah. whimsical. Um, I and just I played through Baldur's Gate one. I just played through it. Like I beat it less. And I think that game is way sillier than people remember. There's a lot of weird fun goofy side quest there's this one where like this guy gets turned into a chicken i think and they make jokes about it there's lots of amusing dialogue uh, options and responses like it gets serious in places like any story does but it's also very whimsical and awkward and silly in places and i don't think larian based on their history and what they showed here is they're not straying 
too far from that in any well, way. Well, I, 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 I am confident that they'll hit the balance because obviously, like Divinity Original Sin One was actually, I think a lot of people, at least that I know, kind of shied away from it because it was too goofy. But then they kind of reeled it in to a pretty good balance in Original Sin Two. Um, and then you look at the two trailers that they released so far for Baldur's Gate. And I think it makes it pretty clear where their focus is. Like this is this is going to have grim, serious, almost like gruesome uh, aesthetic to it. But the Baldur's Gate games, every single version, original game, sequel, expansion, and then even the late expansion, has a character called Nuber, spelled differently in each one, whose only purpose is to bug you and keep pulling up your dialogue window, and you just hey. have to keep telling them those to shove hey. off. Yeah. Hey. Like that's why that's what Baldur's Gate is, and I don't think like people shouldn't like highlight the silliest part of a presentation and be like, "How dare they dance on Baldur's Gate with this goofy stuff?" Like, no, I think it's I don't think it's really that inappropriate. That's just my take, and based on the trailers, I don't think that's something. I think they'll find a good balance. Obviously, maybe we'll we'll see that they. If there's a studio yeah. dude, it's the Larian at this point. Yeah. And we've already seen them kind of take that feedback from Original Sin 1 into 2 and kind of really kind of pull it back into a good balance. So I don't think that to see them uncorrect that, I would think, would be surprising. Uh, and then as for the turn base, I do feel like one thing we have to bring up is someone is going to say, or it's already been stated in different places, well, why don't they just do both turn-based and real-time? Because that's what Deadfire ended up doing, and that's what this new um, Pathfinder game is doing. But then obviously we don't know the, the capability of the developer. We don't know if they're even that passionate about it. Like we don't – there's so many factors that, that you could determine why something wasn't done. Maybe they felt like they would compromise their turn-based vision if they had to section off a portion of their efforts to make it playable in real time. You know what I mean? But you know, someone's going to act like that. They should have just flipped that switch. And if I guess my take is is that if they're – if they have a history of making – solid fundamentally sound turn-based games and they feel like based on what they want to develop as a adaptation of the pen and paper game that turn-based is the best suited for that vision i'm not going to say like well you should have also done it real time like I, I just feel like that would be inappropriate of me to state um obviously i hope people who lean towards real-time gameplay give it a shot and don't immediately discredit it because it doesn't have it i don't know that's just my take um I'm, I'm feeling like it's pretty confident that they've they've substantiated why and how they're developing it this way. Yeah, yeah we'll hear more about on, it. I just like yeah. I, like I said, I kind of just I know I know they're really aiming for early access right now, and that's you know they really benefited from that from original Sin two. And I know some people are going to want to like dive in right away, but me, I just you know I have so many other games I want to you know get to as well. It's like I'll, I just I don't know how far away it is or how far out it is. But I'll, I am interested in this game. I still need to play Baldur's Gate 2. So I don't know when I'll get to that. But I'll, I think I'll probably just wait for the full like full 1.0 release of the game. So we Makes do have obviously everything, yeah, everything that they revealed at PAX we have up on the website. Along with, if you really want to dig into the, the whys and hows of the combat, we do have the nice interview that Adam did with the uh, designer on that front. And I think it is, it's pretty lengthy and enlightening. So even if you don't agree with it, I do think that it does kind of show their stance and why. Uh, I do think it's, I'm eager to see this. And obviously it's not dated. We, it's early access some point. I don't even know if they've stated this year, though I think we can expect it this year. But I'm I'm glad to see that we have another major player. Like what did you say, a 300 man studio making this style of game? I think that's really neat. So we'll look forward to getting more information on that, assuming that uh, we have opportunities this summer to see it, and they're not all 
canceled or postponed due to health concerns. Which does kind of lead into like the tail end of this podcast. So those are the major topics I wanted to hit. But there are a couple just like tertiary little ancillary things at the end here. For instance, we did just learn, I believe just yesterday, that GDC has been postponed to the summer, which obviously brings up questions like where is it going to line up with E3? Uh, when's that going to be? Is that, like How is that going to be affected? Uh, um, it's uh, so worth mentioning they're also offering refunds to people who already opted in. Right. Yeah. For refunds for the tickets themselves. But then you have to wonder, like, travel, lodging, things like that. Who knows? Yeah, GDC, the whole GDC situation sucks. Like, they did the best they could because they had to cancel. So many companies had dropped out. There was still valid health concerns. Yeah, and it's then, worth mentioning that it, it's being, like, postponed because of coronavirus concerns. Like, a lot of companies yeah. are starting to, like, you know, pull out. Even Paxi's felt some of this, too. Um of just you know companies uh, just pulling out left and right just to coronavirus concerns and whatnot and it's understandable right, why square enix was originally going to have a larger presence with 14 but they pulled out you know things like that uh so luckily we like, still got we still to get Baldur's gate but who knows it's too early to well too soon to say like what later events this year are going to do about it because all signs are pointing to the situation not being anywhere near solved come summer. So, I mean, just I'll cross that bridge when we get there. Yeah. And then some people at the most severe or dramatic end will say like, are they going to, is this going to affect the planned releases for consoles? Which I, I, at this moment in time, I would say no, but we did recently just get specs about the Xbox Series X. Uh, Microsoft's been pretty, uh, they've, I think it's been a good measured, like, they obviously announced a console at the Video Game Awards last year. Uh, then we, we got to see some more details of it earlier this year. And just recently, I think we got confirmation of the, uh, 12 teraflops or whatever, which I'm not really into the weeds on that, but people I know have obviously want to stack this up compared to what Sony's offering or what their current GPU is, things like that. So people who are really in the weeds on that, I don't know if maybe James has any more comments on that. Um, it like should be something. stronger than an RTX 2080. Right. It's it's about this level of a, 12, of a 2080 super or whatever. But then, of course, you know, a teraflops depend on... Yeah, teraflops is not... It's an imperfect measurement. It depends on a whole lot of things. Uh, no, well, here's the thing. Can, like, I... Go ahead. I think the current strongest Navi GPU you can get for a consumer, like, hardware right now is, like, under 10 teraflops. And that's a 5700 XT, which is about 5 to 10% slower than a 2070 super. So you get a 12 teraflop Navi 2 GPU. So that's going to also have architectural um, architectural improvements in regards to the like actual like IPC and whatnot. So not even just counting the teraflops. It's it's going to be like significantly more powerful than the highest end AMD GPU in PCs right now. Now, obviously, it's probably going to be pretty different come the time the consoles actually actually release because i'm sure we're going to have nobby 2 gpus available for pc consumer use but as of right now it's looking like the xbox series x is going to actually be in contrast to uh, the xbox one when it released is going to have a very competitive high-end GPU for 
the uh, yeah. Time and the, there are and there are rumors about where the PS5 is. I'm not going to entertain them because there's there's no real evidence. Well, it depends on who you ask, but I, I don't want to say anything unless until it's confirmed. But uh, it's always exciting to see. And I just I think that regardless, I don't think these are going to be delayed. But I don't really know. That's just a gut feeling. But I, I've been impressed with Microsoft's um, efforts with Game Pass and things like that. I've enjoyed three games now through that system. So the fact that the Xbox Series X isn't going to be behind the, the eight ball out of the gate, I think, is good for everyone, I feel. We're not going to have games like Cyberpunk that has to run on a base console that was underpowered to begin with. Things like that. I think yes. it benefits everyone, e- even if you're not interested in that ecosystem itself. It's going to be very interesting to see how expensive the Xbox series is, though, because... Yeah, that's the one thing they haven't... I mean, like, a Ryzen 3700X, which is the closest thing we have to the 8-core 16-thread CPU that's going to be in the next-gen console, is $300. That's not counting the motherboard, that's not counting the RAM, that's not counting the um, power supply, that's not counting the 12-teraflop GPU, that's not counting the SSD... That's not counting manufacturing, shipping, retail margins. Honestly, and people really don't want to hear this, is, well, we've already gone over this before. The next-gen consoles, no matter what, are going to be sold at a loss. But I feel like even if they sell them for like 600 bucks, it's going to be at a loss. It, 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 it's crazy. I think one of the Did big uh, interesting things about the Series X specs is the smart delivery. Like they're already saying that like first party titles like Halo Infinite are going to be like a, a one time purchase. Like if you get the the Xbox One version, you'll be automatically upgraded to the Series X version whenever that comes out, or whenever you get a Series X, you won't have to like pay for it twice. Uh, some Cyberpunk is already out there right. being one of the first uh, saying we'll support that system too. If you buy it, you know, for your uh, Xbox One and you get a Series X down the road, you don't have to buy the Series X version. will automatically upgrade you. I'm interested to see. Obviously, there's only a commitment to their first party titles. There's not like a mandate to third party titles. So I'm interested interested to see where the market goes for that on um, the market penetration. Because they they can't tell third-party publishers, hey, um, don't make remasters of your games to sell it twice. Like, it's not feasible to tell, you know, to mandate that unless both Sony and Microsoft somehow made a significant push for that. That's a tougher sell. But uh, hopefully the next generation is, like, moves forward in smart delivery of, like, hey, stop trying to make consumers buy everything twice. Just, like, hey, just... Get one version, let them upgrade. Even even if even if it's like how they did it with Assassin's Creed Black Flag back at the PS3, the PS4, it's like a ten dollar upgrade to the PS4 version. Like that seems a smarter way of doing it than trying to just gauge us out of our money full price every time. Yeah, hopefully we'll see Sony do something similar. I think that's where the rumors are leading, but obviously we don't know. So don't want to tell yeah, the so absolutely no percent. Fingers crossed. Yeah. So there's a couple other notes that were that were kind of late additions here that I think I might just hand over to James uh, or not James. I'll hand this over to Josh first. Uh, so over the last month or so, Platinum Games has announced like they had they had basically a four pronged announcement series ranging from 
a new studio to Wonderful 101 Kickstarter. Specifically, I believe the last thing they announced was this Project GG, which I have not followed, so I will just hand this off. Josh, what do we think about Platinum Games' uh, recent announcements? So Platinum, they saw they unveiled the Platinum for like the four mystery announcements. Well, the first one was the Wonderful 101 Kickstarter. Uh, the second announcement was uh, this Project GG, which is like a new, a, a new original title uh, directed by Hideki Kamiya, and that's a big deal because Kamiya is involved in a lot of their projects. Not not necessarily directed them directly. This he directed Bayonetta, uh, Beautiful Joe, uh, Wonderful 101. But for all their other projects, it might be like an advising role, maybe a producer role, but not necessarily like directing the title. So this new Project GG uh, is very Ultraman inspired. They released this teaser CGI trailer very early in development. They're still staffing up to like ramp up production on it. Um, they had like a you know falling buildings and this dog about to get crushed, but then this guy got in the way, about to turn into like an Ultraman big giant uh, dude that crushes kaiju, which is kind of like uh, this giant monster. Um, it's uh, it's kind of weird because they call it the the exciting climax finale of like Hideki Kamiya's like superhero trilogy, and no one really knew that this was like a trilogy, and they're assuming that the, this trilogy uh, is now Beautiful Joe, Wonderful One Hundred One. Beautiful Joe had like this common writer, um, you know, theme. Of, uh, Wonderful One Hundred One had the Super Sentai Power Rangers type of style, and this is more. Uh, Ultraman leaning, so that that would line up with their superhero trilogy. They're still very far off uh, in development and whatnot. We so, don't even know how it plays. Yeah, we don't even know how it plays. We, they they they're planning they're planning it for existing platforms, but who knows what existing platforms are going to be when this game materializes. Um, so, but it's 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 uh, fascinating. Um, I think one of the the more interesting announcement was the third announcement in that Platinum Four is they're opening up a studio in Tokyo, so they're going fully independent this time. They're going to be some like mercenary group, like the just like taking projects from different publishers, like they had that period where they had to do Transformers, the, like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Legend of Korra, just to keep the lights on, just like weird licensed titles that like, you know, they came out with various like degrees of quality, but like you can see that they were kind of on the ropes for a bit, but they're really trying to cement themselves moving forward that they want to not only be an independent developer that can stand on their own two feet, but take ownership of what they're making. Because even now they have the things that they're making right now is like owned by other companies like Astro Chain, that's Nintendo, Bayonetta 3's development is like a weird Sega Nintendo joint. Um, it's everything that they're making uh, up until this point has always been owned by someone and they really want to emphasize that they want to start taking taking ownership of what they're making. And that's it's it's going to be really interesting to see uh, where where this leads where this takes platinum over the years? I think platinum. Yeah, they're kind it. of like a classic like vestige of these of the era yeah. of the independent studio. So the fact yeah. that they're still able to operate in that capacity is really kind of unique. When we see other studios the, like Obsidian or uh, Team Ninja get absorbed by Microsoft or uh, Insomniac by Sony, so that they're the fact that they're still have envisioning this idea of self-developing potentially yeah. self-publishing i don't know if that's on the table yeah, but it, it, it is self-publishing as well yes um the, they mentioned in the press release for this that you know back in december they got into a partnership a capital alliance with 10 cent holdings and part of that uh you know 
capital that they got from Tencent uh, was into this, establishing this uh, Tokyo studio. So now they have an office in Osaka. They have a studio in Tokyo. And, you know, they're just kind of riding along, uh, you know, trying to staff up and seeing where this where the future takes them. And best of luck. You know, it's not, it's not a game industry. Time and time again, we've said it before, very not easy to maintain, very not easy to, you know, kind of stay at a consistent like nah, razor like, thin keep the lights on yeah exactly like, something we didn't really talk about with regards to the gdc thing is that any indie studios that had booked time to go to gdc for networking they're the ones that are being impacted the most by the postponement because absolutely like, they, they don't have the uh resources to kind of take that windfall it's just like very very uh, mis- um, unfortunate. So, I mean, that's that's the, just the recent happenings with Platinum. They still have one more announcement to make out of that Platinum 4. Who knows when that'll be revealed, but, you know, it's uh, exciting times for Platinum. Just the, the, new, the new games are cool, but for me, the most important thing was finally establishing, like, a basis of, like, hey, we want to put our foot down. We want to start taking ownership of what we're doing. And, you know, based on their catalog, they deserve it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe not directly related to, like, RPG specifically, but obviously I think there's a lot of crossover in the audience for what what they're outputting and very, very distinct flavor to, like, what a Platinum game is. So the fact that they're able to stand independently and continue to offer that is something I think everyone should celebrate, fans or otherwise. One of the next things that's kind of a late addition here is something that I'll hand over to James. Uh, This is something that I am completely at ground zero on. I don't know anything about this. Yomiwo Sakuhana. Uh, Yomiwo Sakuhana. uh, I'll I'll let you restate it because I just remembered that. Uh, Dungeon uh, RPG coming to Xbox One. Tell me about this. Okay, so we were talking about how the uh, artists behind the Stranger of Sword City like character art was working on, um, what was it? Brigandine. Brigandine. Um, and it reminded me that uh, there was a recent update on Yomiyo Sakuhana, which is Experiences Next DRPG. And um, yeah, they've been, they're also an independent uh, studio in Japan. And they've been having some, in- they've been having an interesting couple of years. Like um, during the Vita's lifespan, they, ha- they released so many dungeon crawlers. Like they released Demon Gaze 1 and 2 remakes of a bunch of their original dungeon crawlers. They did Stranger of Sword City and Stranger of Sword City Revisited. Um, they also just last year released um, Azure Wing Chevalier, um, Azure Wing Chevalier. Um, Gamatsu translated it as Blue Wing Chevalier, but honestly, Azure Wing Chevalier sounds better. And it's not been translated anyway, so I can use that title. Um, <laughs> but yeah, they've... <sighs> Doesn't seem like they've been doing too great. Like I know Azure Wayne Chevelle bombed in Japan, which I guess makes sense. Even in Japan, like a 2019 Vita exclusive isn't going to do amazing numbers. But um, they had an update on this uh, Xbox One exclusive dungeon RPG that they announced back in 2016 and still isn't released yet. And it seems like going through uh, Gamatsu spe- um, specifically is like catalog of news posts. Like when they first announced it, it kind of had an art style closer to the anime alternative art style for Stranger of Sword City on Vita. 
I'm not sure if you know what I'm talking about, Adam. I do. Yeah. Um, then it switched to something more like Spirit Hunter, which is their uh, most recent games they've released in the West, which would be uh, Deathmark and NG, which are kind of horror, horror games slash dungeon RPG crossovers. I actually need to play those. I've heard good things about really good things about them. Like I know that um, our friend Sean said that he thought they were pretty good. So I definitely need to get to those one these days, but um, yeah, new update for it. They released some key art for it, which is this the same artist that did the, uh, did some of the saga Scarlet, Scarlet grace key art. Cause it looks very similar because they don't mm-hmm. list a Gamatsu article, but it's a very similar well, um, art style to it. And obviously people listening to the podcast can't really tell what we're talking about. I guess we can maybe put it in the uh, header or something for the podcast. I don't know, but uh, weird. Um, but yeah, they showed off some gameplay. Finally, they don't have a release date, but it's like, it's kept getting delayed. Hopefully it comes out this year because I do want experience to keep doing well because even if not every one of their dungeon RPGs has really hit it for me, I do think it's it's been a kind of a tough time for dungeon RPG fans and like in general because like Etrian Odyssey, obviously we've been getting like Etrian Odyssey five and Nexus in the West on 3DS in the last couple years, but we haven't seen anything for the spiritual successor that was apparently going to hit Switch in a long time. Like I'm sure we'll eventually see it, but it's been taking a while and then like Labyrinth of Galleria was like, it's basically vaporware at this point. Cause we don't know if it's even going to come out. Like, it's just a to be confirmed release date, even though it was supposed to come out in like spring of last year or something like that. It's yeah, it's uh, kind of. So the, first of all, the saga artist, the most pop, the most commonly named one is Tomomi Kobayashi. And I don't think she has anything to do with this. Um, now this Yomo, uh, let me see here, Yomo yeah, yeah. Sakuhana game. I remember when it was first announced. It was actually, it's actually somewhat amusing here. When they first announced it, Experience, the developer, they would basically only done dungeon RPGs, and they actually announced it as more to be like an actiony game. It did, they didn't show it, but they said it. Like this is going to be something uh, yeah, different. I remember this, yeah, and yeah. it's going to be like an action game instead. And then one reason why it's taken so long for it to release, and they're just now revealing it four years later or whatever is that partway through, they actually kind of decided actually, we're just going to make this a dungeon crawler again, like every other game we've made. And it's kind of amusing because that's what they're known for. And that's what they've done. And it's, it's the, the fact that they announced this as something else and then went back to that. It's just, it's going like, to be messy uh, also because you're ex- releasing Xbox one exclusive in Japan. It's also yeah. funny because it back in 20, it's actually funny because back in 2016, the shortly lived experience Inc west or whatever they were called actually said this game was going to be localized but of course yeah. they're no longer a thing now so all bets are off <laughs> it's uh it's rough it's rough yeah um interesting so i mean maybe look for <laughs> look more to that later i guess the last yeah. the last tweet from experience inc west was in 2017 yeah what was it uh they did some weird. They 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 they. It feels like they just tweeted about Str- the time, but uh, they tweeted about Operation Abyss coming to Steam. Uh, yeah, and, 
Hey, Operation Vis, I thought was decent. <laughs> Not as good as Stranger Sword City, but it was decent. Yeah. Bunch of bullshit. <laughs> Wasn't That's a big fan. It's the most techno babble game. I one of one of the most techno babble games I've ever played. Where they just said bunch of bullshit. Yeah, was We're not a fan there. of the level design in that game. And honestly, the big thing with it to me is that it felt really obtuse. How you could attack based on different lanes. It felt too random for me. Maybe it's just been too long, and I don't exactly remember how the battle system worked. But I remember at the time it kind of confused me, and that was after I had played quite a few dungeon RPGs already. So. All right, for our very last little piece of information on the notes here, uh, this is something that I think Josh can speak to, but Dengeki PlayStation is having its final regular issue next month with volume 686. Yeah, so this is one any, of those Any things, further context on that? Uh, I mean, it's kind of the long-running narrative, like just print media, even in Japan, like you know, Japan, like one of the last standing guards for print media especially in the gaming landscape um uh, you know dengeki playstation has been around since 1994 um i think they start i started seeing the signs on the wall about two three years ago when they went from a bi-weekly release to a monthly release for dengeki playstation um dengeki is an outlet over there they do a lot of uh, online uh, articles now they have also have dengeki nintendo which is uh irregularly released uh issue that's i don't think it's available electronically like playstation is but it's kind of it's just sad to see i mean they're they established a new live stream uh program recently over the last six seven months called the Geki playstation live might have been more than that um so that'll continue on but it's just kind of just seeing you know more and more of the twilight of printed media as time goes on that's uh you know, there's not not much else to say about that saying, but that, I, I like following, uh, like gaming magazines in general, even beyond just Famitsu and the Geki PlayStation. I used to follow GamePro, Game Informer, and whatnot growing up. I just I liked I like being presented info in the in magazine form, even still. I, I don't know why, but there's something about it that I really enjoy. So it's just kind of sad to see it go. It's um. Yeah, we're just in the age of digital distribution for games themselves, for trailers, for press releases, yeah, assets, yeah. and uh, this I just like really related. info printed. Yeah, yeah, this isn't really related, but uh, there's a common through line. Like I look at what Nintendo has put on for PAX with their awesome Animal Crossing exhibit, and that's you know that's that's a convention physical exhibit and not a magazine. But like, I think when we see stuff shifting to Nintendo directs to digital uh, releases to uh, whatever the PlayStation version of it. Like, yes, there's reason. I, it's it's obvious to anyone why things are going that way, but I do feel like you you are losing something without the uh, even. It's it's a bit maybe maybe it's just being sentimental, but uh, I do, I see where you're coming from when you just say you can't you can't really like mathematically explain it, but you, what you're what you're losing by no longer having those physically present, physically printed things to attach to when it's all just digitally distributed nowadays yeah and this uh final issue is going to be in next month's um issue on march 28th 
Um, and yeah, and then after that, I mean, this, this like this, like I said, this isn't the final, final Dengeki PlayStation issue. It's just going to be the final regularly released one. It's just from then on, we don't know when an issue will come out, if there's going to be a, a new issue that's going to come out. So it's not going to come monthly anymore. So um, yeah, um, it was nice knowing it for coming in monthly, I guess. Hopefully, hopefully we get to see see them more in the future because um, Kite and I, uh, Kite, another writer on the site, and I were talking about it. But we just saw like the Genki PlayStation has gradually been losing exclusives. Like its exclusives now, these days are Neptunia related or Compile Heart Project related, or and or Falcom related with uh, um, exclusive like screenshots or info or interviews uh, with Falcom. About their upcoming games. Other other than that, they the only things else they have is their uh, artwork galleries and their monthly manga chapters and whatnot. And that's usually posted up online at some point. And that's and they're and, and on top of that, they're relatively overpriced for what they offer compared to what Weekly Famitsu has. You can get an issue of Weekly Famitsu for about maybe roughly four bucks, and uh, each monthly PlayStation issues uh, double the price. Uh, on that, so China, all signs pointing to this isn't a surprise, but it is what it is. End of an era, or uh, another another notch in the era ending. Mm-hmm. We want to word that most poetically. Yeah. So I think that wraps up all of the discussions for this extra long leap year, leap day edition of the TetraCast with some exclusive uh, preview of Final Fantasy, some packs uh, fallout with terms of Baldur's Gate, and then all the other regular news and what we've been doing. So again, if you've made it all the way through the end, thank you for joining us and listening through three hours of us talk about our favorite genre of games. Uh, you can find us at rpgsite.net. We're active on Twitter at rpgsite. We mentioned briefly the YouTube channel at rpgsite.net, and we've got the review there for Hero Must Die. Um, you can find us on Facebook and Discord. All those links are on our homepage. If you want, you can follow me at zeomassacot on Twitter, Z-E-O-M-A-S-S-I-C-O-T. Uh, Josh, where can they find you? Uh, you can follow me at HD Kieran, H-D-K-I-R-I-N. Uh, Adam, where can they find you? K-I-N-G underscore S-E-D-A. And James. You can find me at T-H-E-S-W-W-E-E-T. All right. And then as always, please leave us comments. Please leave us feedback. We're always eager to read those. And as soon as the new deluge of games starts coming out in March, we'll be covering those with reviews, guides, and everything in between. So again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Godspeed.